Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon. Read A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 123, Catalan 6 in A Game of Thrones. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Aliana. This is so exciting. You know, we always pay attention to the number just a little and it is one, two, three. Isn't that fun? That's very fun. Very quaint. I didn't even think of it. So what a nice sprinkle of fun on our episode, Eliana. I love it. I, I love do. it too. It's it's the first time I think we've ever really been able to do this. Episode 12, just like, it's not exciting to be like, yeah, one, two, whatever. <laughs> so It requires thinking, you know, like equals three. It's too much. Yeah. One, and two, three. <sighs> listen, this episode is more than just one, two, three mm. to me. Uh it's the one, two, threes, the ABCs, the basics of the veil. Yes, because we lied last week. You may remember toward the end of our episode, we were like, we're going to Winterfell. I'm so excited. We're going back to Winterfell. She's taking Tyrion to Winterfell. Here we go. We're going with Ka- We lied. We are in the veil. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, we lied. We said it loudly so that everyone would know. And now our enemies are heading to Winterfell. But we... <laughs> Or in the veil. <laughs> Good for my infant sons. <laughs> Whatever. Whatever. They'll find out eventually. Oh. They'll be like, shit, we're in the wrong place. <sighs> well, the, the North is very vast, and I can see that ending poorly for a less seasoned traveler. Well, we are, you know, getting much more seasoned as travelers. Right. We have a few things for this journey. For example, we have Patreon episodes this month for all of our patrons, $5 and up, Stranger Tier and Above, which is uh, named after a horse in the central for any trip. <laughs> yes, you'll need a horse for these adventures. This adventure this month is going to be to another world, wow. right? Every other month we do in A Song of Ice and Fire special patron episode. And every other other month we do a His Dark Materials or other story-themed episode. So this month is His Dark Materials-themed month, and we are going to be talking about the TV show, the serial happening on BBC, HBO, depending on where you're watching from, which country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This month we'll be discussing a bottle episode that, uh, basically the missing episode, right? His Dark Materials Season 2 had an episode that was supposed to happen and didn't because of the dreaded pandemic. We're going to break that down for you. Yes, we are. But other things that are happening, right? Well, one of them's already happened, alas, was our Patreon, Discord, brunch slash happy hour. That already happened last weekend. But next month's date will be announced soon enough. This is open to our patrons in the Thunder tier and above, $10 and up, where, as you all know, we have our Discord where people come, hang out, and when we get together, we sometimes do games, such as Jackbox games, and giveaways, and get to know yous. Yeah, we have a blast. You know, we talked last time about the game we played last month, Survive the Internet, which we all came back to. Again, this month, I was canceled. I did not survive the internet in this fun party game we played. It was very sad. I was framed. I was honestly framed, just like Tyrion Lannister. Good Mm -hmm. Tyrion Lannister in this chapter. Tyrion is framed. Yeah, so come to our Discord brunch. You can cancel me there, I guess. That's a thing. 
That's a thing that's happened. Hopefully next month I don't get canceled. Someone else playing the game gets canceled. <laughs> well, something else is, as we have told you all, this part uh, was not a misdirection, unlike going to the north. This month we are not going to be putting out your regular weekly scheduled episode the last week of April. This month, we are going to be sharing our La Belle Sauvage episode next week, and it will be La Belle Sauvage with... We are so excited to bring on our friend and special guest from the socialists of media zizzes, Warren, aka the Hedge Knight, to help us out with some of the lore and, and legends and really breaking that down in La Belle Sauvage. Yeah, if you haven't read the His Dark Material series, you gotta... Eliana got me onto it. It's really fun. It's good, you know, in these times to read other books. I have to remind myself that sometimes it's a new thing, right? So Eliana got me hooked. There are three main books. Then there's a companion trilogy of three other books. Two right now. One is impending. Someday we'll get it. We'll see. We're always waiting. You and me, Eliana. I mean, that one's dependable. Uh, that one's coming out. Yes, can't wait for that someday. The third book of dust from Philip Pullman. So they aren't, uh, sometimes they aren't as faceted as this. They do have a lot of great, deep, different connections, and they're all fun to get together. And we're finishing La Belle Sauvage soon. So we're excited to have our friend Warren on. But we do have an, a Song of Ice and Fire episode after our swift break, because as Eliana said, there will be no episode in your feed the last Friday of April here 2021 no episode but we will be back next month with a catalan episode catalan 7 in a game of thrones featuring another special guest our friend clint from the learned hands podcast laws of ice and fire he is the perfect judicial guest to have on to bring justice justice to the trial about to happen in the veil so we are excited to come back to you in May and hit the ground running with Clint and Kat. Kat and Clint. Until then, we will talk about one email we received. Just one. I want to pop it off with one from our friend Scott, a good friend of ours that hangs out at the Patreon Discord with us and uh, always has some great insights. He's writing an essay about Kat and Lady Stoneheart and a lot of some of the themes we're actually talking about. Uh, it's it's pretty good. I hope he does release it someday, but no pressure. But he did send us a great email that can kind of give you a glimpse of his lens on the series and what he sees in Cat too. Our friend Scott says a greeting and also that Scott is enjoying how the most controversial opinions on Cat are about Daddy Malister and hair pulling. I didn't think those were <laughs> controversial. I thought that those were objectively accepted by everyone so far from all the responses that we got. <laughs> <laughs> we're just very controversial and brave. We're bold. We're forging a path that people are afraid to say these things, you know? I think, they, I mean, they seem to be widely agreed upon every time we say these, so. <laughs> Scott also says, Something I find interesting about the infamous Inn at the Crossroads Arrest is that it's the first of several actions Catelyn takes, but the consequences are faced not by her, but by her family. When Cat arrests Tyrion, Ned takes responsibility for her actions and his entourage is slaughtered. And Catelyn's home region of the Riverlands is raided. When Catelyn releases Jamie in Clash, she volunteers to be placed in a dungeon, but is instead confined to her father's rooms. Jamie's release is the catalyst 
for the tension between Rob and Lord Karstark, whom Rob eventually executes. Kat's actions are not seen as hers, but rather as an extension of the men in her lives. Even during the Red Wedding, Kat meets her demise not because she kept her promise for Jingle Bell, but rather because she committed the great sin of being a screaming woman! Ah, what a sin it is. This is a significant part of Kat's chapters because she's the first and most prominent look we get into the challenges faced by women in Westerosi politics. This also plays a huge role in the arcs of Arianne, Asha, Brienne, and Circe when they are introduced after the Red Wedding. The limitations that Catelyn feels is a noblewoman helped tie the story in part to Danny's eventual campaign for Westeros, where the Dragon Queen may defy every convention for women and do little to correct her already concerning reputation. For Catelyn, we see this limitation again in her very next chapter, where she cannot find a polite way to refuse Bronn's request to join her and Tyrion at the Eyrie. Every instinct Catelyn has tells her to leave the sellsword behind, but she's too bound by proper courtesies to do anything other than acquiesce, and leads to a tactical blow for the Stark family and their allies. Thank you, Scott. Scott is excited for the next half a year of Cat. <laughs> Cat uh, the Cat Summer. Summer yeah, we've Cat. got like six to seven months. I uh Really? Huh. We're in our our third our what our first cat master? Yes, our first our first of the cat's lives. Soon enough, we'll get the the second of her life. Yes, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, not much else to say. Again, just let them do the podcast. God, there's a lot brought into this chapter specifically of women leading, women ruling. What makes a woman leader, and who's able to be a leader that we're going to get into today. So. I'm excited to come back to some of what Scott talked about. Yeah, I love that lens of this is the time that those consequences don't just affect Kat, but those around her. And I think it's a perfect way to set up the rest of this chapter. Yes. Because, oh boy, do consequences come. And we're going to talk about them. But first, let's jump into our lightning round and check out what we missed from Catalan 5 through Catalan 6. In Sansa 2. Sansa attends her very first tourney, but the magic by day's end has faded when her Prince Charming turns into a dog? At Art 7, Ned has his own tourney experience after trying to convince his king not to attend with Barristan. Later, Varys reveals to Ned that Robert was meant to die. Tyrion 4. Tyrion arrives not in Winterfell where he thought he was being taken, but in the Vale. In the Vale! <laughs> In the veil! He attempts to convince Catelyn of his innocence, but is interrupted by the Mountain Men of the Moon attacking. And, of course, Eliana wants to remix it old school style and read a quote here, so we'll we'll pause the storm and take it away, Eliana. Yeah, remember back then, our lightning round, sometimes we would interject quotes and stuff from the chapters that we wanted to call out that pertain to this one. This one, I just love this line, you know, whenever people say that they find Kat to be really dumb and unintelligent, (laughs) I always come back to this line from Tyrion 4 in A Game of Thrones. This is the high road, he gasped, looking at Lady Stark with accusation. The eastern road, you said we were riding for Winterfell. Catelyn Stark favored him with the faintest of smiles. Often and loudly, she agreed. No doubt your friends will ride that way when they come after us. I wish them good speed. (sniffs) Even now, long days later, the memory filled him with a bitter rage. 
All his life, Tyrion had prided himself on his cunning, the only gift the gods had seen fit to give him, and yet this seven times damned she-wolf Catelyn Stark had outwitted him at every turn. I love it. I love it. And that is like the original, the Omega quote about it, because of course later we get the slightly lesser but still good version from Cersei, right? Calling Sansa, who escaped her, a she-wolf. And uh, it seems that is a Lannister, a Lannister problem these days, right? Wolves outwitting lions. Hmm. It does seem so. <laughs> Here, Catelyn is not thought of as a Tully, but as a she-wolf, which is interesting, considering a line that she'll think of later, <laughs> later this chapter. But speaking of other she-wolves, we have Arya three. Arya chases cats past the royal children all the way into the dungeons, where she overhears two men plot to remove another hand. Hmm. And we go to that hand in Eddard Eight. Ned and Robert argue about the Targaryen princess across the sea. Ned resigns in protest of his king's decision to murder her. As Ned packs for Winterfell, Littlefinger arrives with last-minute hints hidden in a brothel. And that brings us to Cat Six in A Game of Thrones. It's been two weeks of riding. And I think Catelyn even murdered a man back there. But Catelyn and her party finally reach the Bloody Gate, where they meet players such as Donald Wainwood, Maya Stone, and of course, the long-awaited Brynden the Blackfish Tully! But things have changed in the Vale, and after a dangerous ride to the top, Catelyn worries that she'll feel the chill of the Eerie's icy walls. <laughs> Liza's icy nipples, eh? <laughs> That's why they're so hard all the time. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's so... Cold in that altitude. It's quite nipply up there. (laughs) Sir Donald Wainwood declares they would have sent an escort had they known Catelyn planned to take the high road to the Eyrie. Yeah, I love that at the start of this chapter, Catelyn is warned that the high road isn't safe anymore. But the high road is all that Catelyn... And Ned have been raised to take, right? It's that family duty honor. It's the thing that you're supposed to do as a well-bred high lord and lady. Catelyn hasn't learned that the players and even those close to her haven't been taking the high road for years with Peter and Liza, you know, doing underhanded shit like orchestrating John Aaron's death and <laughs> Ned's new job. But how is Kat to know that the game's changed since her girlhood and that the road she's always taken is no longer safe? Ned also ends up on the unsafe high road, and of course Catelyn learns to take the low road, but a bit too late, becoming later one of the forces that ends up actually making those literal high roads unsafe later on. This is great because we actually do have Ned finally choosing to take the low road too late, right? When it comes to Littlefinger, that same road that he leaves the city that Littlefinger tells him, go, go out of this area of the city and you can get out and go see this child I'm talking of. And Sansa is smuggled the same way out later in A Storm of Swords, right? She follows the same path her father did as she leaves the city to go to the port and get on that ship or that boat, I should say, before the ship. And, of course, this grapples with some of the big themes that we see as an issue. Both Catelyn and Liza in this chapter have quite obviously quite a bit of pride in quite a bit of different manners that we're going to talk about and approach. Yes. Of course, Catelyn learns everything that you're speaking about, like taking the low road instead of the high road, 
the hard way, right, at the hands of the clansmen out in the mountains. We get a passage of her kind of discussing this grief. Sometimes she felt as though her heart had turned to stone. Six brave men had died to bring her this far, and she could not even find it in her to weep for them. Even their names were fading. Oh yes, heart had turned to stone. Ear horns! Yeah, I mean, obviously we have to bring this up. This is, we know what it means. What does it mean? It is, what does it mean? It isn't that deep, Eliana. No, I'm just kidding. Beyond the obvious foreshadowing, I think it is notable here, this passage, she thinks of Tyrion's serving men as part of the six, right? So the six people that are left, that's including both of their parties, because when the mountain clans came down on them, they did join together in the previous chapter. She is unsure on her feelings around Tyrion. In the last chapter, part of her did kind of seem to look at him in a way that he was like, yeah, look, we're almost at an understanding. I'm not a bad guy. And here she questions it later on for even a moment in here and the next chapter. But this shows a little bit of good faith, right? That she's counting this men, these men as part of her party, the whole party in totality. Even if, as we discuss moving forward, she really isn't into Bronn's demeanor. Yeah, it shows this responsibility that she feels towards them, right? Because, mm-hmm. and I think that's why it stands out that the names of the men who accompany Tyrion are fading. That shows the changes that are happening in Catelyn, who, as we've seen in the past few chapters, usually does value the service. I mean, the meta reason is I'm pretty sure George is like, I don't feel like coming up with more names, but within the story, right? We know that Ned knew the names of the men who served him. We saw him mourning them in the attack that they sustained in King's Landing uh, as a result of these actions. And a few chapters ago, we saw that when Catelyn was at Winterfell and she was shirking her duties while grieving Bran, it's pointed out that she also knows every single person in her household, which is why she recognized she's like, I don't know this strange stable man who is trying to kill my son. And this is the same Catelyn who two chapters ago made a point of personally paying each man who rode her to King's Landing his silver. So there's definitely, I think, a sort of grief and shame, right? When Catelyn finds herself failing to remember these men who died for her and to mourn them and respect them because, as you're pointing out, she feels responsibility towards them. But that sort of mourning and and remembering the people who served you, that's something that people on the high road do. And that high road, as we've said, is disappearing. Those lines are blurring for Kat, and we will be spending a lot of time moving forward in the next two books with her as her grief kind of piles up, right? And you can kind of see it's hard for her at this time to do both things, right? She's trying to do her best, but she's kind of on fumes. They just survived an attack, and she can't even think. And this is kind of her state of being for the rest of her life. Or lives. Two lives. Oh my god, am I going to be anxious until I die? Probably. Holy shit. Okay. Feels bad, man, right? (laughs) As the men of the Vale approach, she thinks, we're doomed. But then they had realized it was the sky blue and white moon and falcon of House Aaron there to save them. Yes. I wonder if this is something that sort of hints at us that one day we'll find that the Banners of House Aaron appearing over the horizon, right, will be a welcome surprise once more. 
Oh, like in the Battle of the Bastards? Kind of, kind of, you know, similar, similar <laughs> vibes, but not exactly that. No, not that. <gasps> okay, do you think they misread it, though, in that book? Uh, there's they were, a like, lot reading that I the think world of ice and fire. Sam's <laughs> Which a POV. part, Chloe? Could you be more specific, Chloe? Uh, no, they, they were like, Battle of Seven Stars, Battle of the Bastards, close enough. No, I'm just kidding. We are good homies, me and D&D. Anyways, no, I'm thrilled. I am... All right, we have to talk about the, the falcon in the room. You know me. I'm over here like the only person that cares about Vale history and our posse. I love the Vale. I just think it's glorious, and I think George loves it, and I think that shows. The Vale is like his perfect little, you know, palace, palace in the clouds, and I love that. Uh, he's actually said the Eerie is based on Neuschwanstein, which is in Germany. It's near the Austrian border by South Bavaria. It's a 19th century historicist palace on a rugged hill above a village. And it's actually called the Sleeping Beauty Castle. It is a huge tourist attraction. And it is the castle Disney World and Disneyland based Sleeping Beauty's castle on. It is perfect to help us envision this idea of the castle on a cloud with these close, tight-knit little towers you know, with princess stories originating in Germany, like Snow White, Cinderella, looking at you, Sansa Stark, and your missing shoe, and of course, Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, absolutely. All of the stories coming together here, that castle in the sky, and as you said regarding Cinderella, there's a moment here in this chapter where Shireen's like, well, I'm not a pumpkin. And I was like, huh. <laughs> so that, that's a great veil history lesson for all of us. Donald is 20 and Saki with the brown hair. He notes that the clans have grown bolder since Lord John died, and worried up to him, Donald would take a hundred men into the mountain to teach them sharp lessons. Not 20 good men, a hundred. But Lady Liza had forbidden that, along with forbidding the knights from participating in the hand's tourney. She has been keeping the knights home, the swords in the veil for defense. Against what, he says, no one knows. Shadows, some say. (sighs) Ah, of course, that wonderful, wonderful idea of shadows on the wall and politicking coming to play, showing what's to come for the Vale and their role in the future, possibly, right? And as we go into A Clash of Kings, there's proof that literal shadows are scary, which I think is the funniest thing about it, that this, of course, ties in so strongly with Tyrion's plot, with the politicking, but literal shadows that, you know, could kill you, could kill a king. Oh, that's true. That is, in fact, in this in the next book. Donnell hopes he hasn't spoken out of turn, and Catelyn offers that frank conversation does not offend her. Which, again, Catelyn's more about business than about niceties. Catelyn thinks that she knows what these shadows are. They're Lannisters. She glances back at Tyrion and Bronn. She's like, did they notice my subtweet? Um, in my in my head, who had grown very close on the journey. Tyrion is more clever than she liked. He entered the Vale her captive, but now look at him. He's armored, he's unchained, he's riding with a dirk and axe strapped to a saddle, and he's laughing. <laughs> so am I, man. I mean, I, I have to give it up for him twice in this chapter. Here's one time I'll say it, you know, like, good for you, Tyrion, yeah. you're funny. He cracks me up. You know, you can't not laugh a little at him. He is a, uh, an easily likable antagonist and i love that 
I, I love this line here that he's armored in not just the battle remains, right? Like he's riding with what he's won from his battle, but also the loyalty of these men. Mm, true, true. He's been able to sort of get on the same level with them. And as you were discussing earlier regarding shadows, right? And as we've pressed throughout this character read of Catelyn, the Lannisters were falsely maligned in all of this. But... There is, though, something to shadows being associated with the Lannisters. As you said, there's some of the, those metaphors around shadows and power. But also, it reminds me of, in A Dance with Dragons, Bakoro describing his vision of Tyrion to Tyrion and says, And you, a small man with a big shadow snarling in the midst of it all. And, and that line haunts me constantly. It's interesting to consider when at this part of the story, though, right here at the very beginning, because Tyrion, again, is among the falsely accused. Well, Tyrion has done nothing wrong within the confines of this th these chapters so far um, at this point. And it's interesting to compare Tyrion's time as a captive to Jaime being a captive on the road, freed this time by Catelyn, kind of. Tyrion succeeds in getting his chains off, where Jaime doesn't, but for both, when it comes to their traveling companions, Kat and Brienne, respectively, begin to question their assumptions about their captives. Yeah, I, I actually almost forgot about that beautiful, juicy content that we're going to have of Jaime and his chains later. So thank you. Catelyn had Eliana, to get rid of him because she was like, mm, it's too hot. Catelyn was like, this is a moment... She's like, too mm. precious to happen in this timeline. She's like, I'm busy mourning my husband. I can't have Jason Malister and you here at the same time. <laughs> I mean, why not? Okay, <laughs> anyways. Tyrion shows no hint of fear, though he is surrounded by most of her men and her sister's men. Could I be wrong? Catelyn wondered, not for the first time. Could he be innocent after all of Bran and John Aaron and all the rest? And if he was, what did that make her? Six men had died to bring him here. Resolute, she pushed her doubts away. Ah, this line is really interesting because this whole passage is interesting. It reminds me how Ned and Catelyn are both alike in their thinking and the way that they orient themselves in accomplishing certain tasks, right? As well as their doubt in their journeys. Their doubt is so parallel. Mm. Ned, having just killed Lady wondering if he did the wrong thing, and Catelyn right now doubting what she's doing for her family, and later realizing, just like Ned in Sansa, for example, of, oh, we told her there'd be songs, but not like this, which feels a little uh, on the nose, right, with Marillion later. The guilt they bear at having to act as lord or lady in times like these, meaning men dying for them, it is immense, and it does show. Yeah, and, and the way that they shoulder that kill, right? And that line of thinking, though, all where she wonders the cost if they don't fulfill the mission, slash if she ends up being wrong about Tyrion, it reminds me a little bit of Quentin's journey, thinking that he can't turn around and go home now, he can't give up on his mission because of all of the people that they've lost on this journey, what they've gone through, that sort of sunk cost fallacy. And I imagine that it's something we're going to end up seeing of Daenerys too, right? That reluctance to give up knowing how many gave up their lives to get here and everything that she herself has had to give up. Damn. Yeah, there, there's kind of this unbending, unyielding quality, right? Uh, in not sacrificing, like, it's too important of a mission to give up. It means too much. Just like you said. 
Catelyn requests Donal to send for Maester Coleman when they reach the keep, as Roderick's wounds on the road have led to him becoming feverish. He could scarcely sit his horse, and Bran was like to let him die, so she commands Marillion instead to watch over him. There's a little bit of a foreshadowing here, right, as far as A Game of Thrones goes, because this isn't the only time in A Game of Thrones we hear that a man is ill and not able to stay on his horse, right? Uh, specifically, we see this later with Cal Drogo and Danny, so bringing in a little bit more of that leadership quality of that unyielding with Daenerys and Catelyn as well, with having their companion in this uh, this slow and steady race of battle and building the, the tensions of war. There's a little bit of that parallel coming in with Cal Drogo there. It's just Roderick. I mean, it's not that deep, but... Yeah, yeah, but no, there is that, and, and I think that really stands out on a reread, that, that parallel imagery. It kind of highlights the difference culturally between Westeros and the Dothraki, but also coming back to something that you've said before, like, she's not going to just let Roderick stay there. They're BFFs now. They've been through a lot. <laughs> they are ride or die, and that's what's literally happening here, ride or die. <laughs> she's like, Roderick, you're going to do literally. it. But I also am <laughs> like, shit, she put really in, in charge of him and in charge of watching him, and I'm like, I would be really mad if, like, I were already feeling shitty and sick, and someone put Marillion in charge of me. I'm like, shit, I would just die. I would die out of spite instead of enduring that. Yeah, I mean, he'd rather have Bran watch over him, right? In the last chapter with him, he literally says, like, why would any man decide to be a singer and not take up a sword? He personally would probably rather Bran in this moment. I mean, there are some singers that I'd be like, sure, that's fine, but like, really, and definitely, definitely not. I mean, if I'm dying, you know, come I, on. I guess, but again, <laughs> just let me die, maybe. <laughs> Donnell hesitates before he answers, and then Donnell tells her that Liza commanded Maester Coleman to remain at the Eyrie at all times for Lord Robert. But a septant at the gate can tend to the wounded. Ooh, big red flag, right? Big red flag right mm, here. She's yes, yes. That's like a, uh-oh, what do you mean the Maester can't come to me? I fucking came all the way into the ear. <sighs> Catelyn has much more faith in a Maester right, than a Septon's prayers, and she's about to say as much, but then she gets a look at the large battlements ahead of them and the stony mountainsides surrounding them. Yes, and Catelyn would prefer the Maester's healing to the Septon's prayers because Catelyn, unlike Liza, is not an anti-vaxxer. Yeah, she believes in science, apparently, bro. Yes, she does. It's poetry and motion. <laughs> <laughs> As they finally make it to the top, a knight rides out to meet them. His horse is armored in gray, but his cloak ripples the blue and red of Riveron with a shiny black golden obsidian fish pinning the cloak to his shoulder. Who would pass the bloody gate? Calls Brendan Tully. Calls Sir Brendan Tully, excuse me. It's almost very rude there for a second. <laughs> and Donald Wainwood announces them. The knight of the gate lifted his visor. I thought the lady looked familiar. You are far from home, little cat. <laughs> and you, uncle, she said, smiling despite all she had been through. <laughs> bah. <sighs> his smoky voice takes her back two decades to being a child at River Run. Brynden, her uncle, says his home is at the back of the Erie, and Catelyn tells him, your home is in my heart. 
so smooth. Oh, that was so smooth. I cried. It was just so sweet and yeah. heartfelt, and it's so apparent that as much as Liza has fallen from grace right later, Brendan still sees something good in both of these girls, something worth protecting, and especially Liza here, uh, where Haster was emotionally distant in many aspects to his children, busying himself with rule, Brendan was always there to try to bring what little fairness and equality and justice he could to their silly petty problems and games and provided a fair adult perspective to them and they needed that outlet, right? They didn't have another parent as they grew up after Manissa passed. They didn't have that parent, right, to to balance out things and they needed that perspective. Where Liza probably felt very isolated with Hoster, especially as Catelyn kind of took most of that attention, it's likely Brynden made her and Catelyn and Edmure feel so safe and not judged throughout the years, and that's a very special connection. Yeah, and he even, you know, extends that same affection, right, to Littlefinger as a child, it sounds like, and, and not just to the Tully children. It really shows what a what a compassionate adult Uncle Brynden is. And it also proves on that same note that nothing could have saved Littlefinger from being the way he is. Yeah, only he could have saved himself. And he was like, no, but what if I chose this? <laughs> but what about a 13-year-old girl? I don't remember where it was. I I was reading and someone was like, yo, this man's just still stuck on like the opinion of a 13-year-old girl. Yeah, I just can't imagine it, personally, as a uh, a person of Littlefinger's age... Someone on the a little, other, yeah, a I little mean, higher. I'm just like on age. the other end of the movie thirteen going on thirty, you know, and like, yeah, it's not right. It's pretty fucked up. <sighs> well, Catelyn asks her uncle to remove his helm so that she can look on his face, and he says the years haven't improved it, but he takes it off all the same. And Cat thinks he lied. His features are lined and weathered, and the auburn tully hair has turned to ash, but his smile and deep blue eyes are the same. He asks oh. if Liza knew that they were coming, and she explains that there was no time, and she fears that they ride before the storm. Donal asks for their entrance to the Vale, and the Wainwoods, who are ever the ones for ceremony, and Brynden allows it. I, too, am one for ceremony. <laughs> House Wainwoods, so I get it. No, I, I love this, again. Calling out that the Wainwoods are ceremonial. We see them moving forward, and, and honestly, they seem very traditional, right? We meet Anya, and she is a little, I don't know if uptight's the word, just more severe than some of the characters that we've met, you know? Not as jolly, not like a, a hearty lady. She's very serious, because she has a lot of serious work to do as a Lady of the Vale. And I don't know if any of you have heard our The Winds of Winter Elaine episode with some really fun, fun spoiler episode, basically, if you have read that sample chapter from The Winds of Winter. I don't know, I'm going to talk about The Winds of Winter for a hot second. If you don't want to hear about it, skip ahead for a minute. Uh, we don't get complaints about it. So, I mean, if you want me to not talk about it, mm -hmm. I actually assume that most of our listeners right, have probably read more winds of winter chapters than i have so at this point i mean i just want to say like it, it i'm not one to ever say it's been a while but it's definitely been a while so if you're like me you've consumed them if you're like eliana you're crazy but if you're like me you've consumed them i'm a little crazy but also i'm kind of saving myself now for like 
I think it'll be fun for our listeners when it's like my first reactions, kind of. Aww. Well, in the winds of winter, Elaine, we learn that there is going to be a tournament thrown. Sansa has actually kind of given the theme of the tournament, which is the Winged Knights coming from some of the fun Vale lore that George has written lots about. And she wants to choose a king's guard, basically, a king of mountain and vale type guard of eight winged knights. Uh, similar to what you'd see for a king of the, with his king's guard, right? But for the lord of the eerie. And Sansa definitely in these chapters is erecting something ceremonial. Here she has a giant's lance that is made of sugar, right? A giant sugar spun giant's lance and... Of course, Littlefinger brings in lemons for lemon cakes for her to keep her, you know, as an accomplice without her really realizing, realizing. Yeah, anyways, uh, but more traditions are happening. Like, this becomes very much so a big tournament built on Vale traditions and ceremony regarding the Lord of the Vale and kind of like hyping up, gassing up Robert Aaron, Lord of the Vale, woo woo, hype squad. And this sort of tradition and ceremony... It's obvious that Littlefinger's interest in the Vale is shallow, right, and monetary aligned, because Sansa, in the little time in her education as a child, stories from her family, and her time in the Vale under Littlefinger's tutelage and observing, as Robert's playmate here, she has learned so much of what these people might appreciate to see at a tourney and what might not turn them off and actually make them go, ah, a beautiful tournament in the Vale today with all sorts of fun Vale activities going on. Uh, that's the sort of tradition the Waynewoods will love, being honored by having a knight protect Robert Aaron of their house, kind of amping that up, especially in the face of Harry the Heir, which is so big. Uh, that Elaine planned all these minute events and details in this tourney based on these traditions, it, it, it should be meaningful, I think, especially to the likes of Nestor and Bronzio and Royce as well. Yeah, I mean, they're a proud people, right? And as you said, they're proud of their traditions and, and the ceremonies. So that's, I think that's a great call out. And it also speaks back to, I mean, something that Catelyn has done well too, right? In her time in the North, that though she was felt alone and uncomfortable right among these new people and in a different culture we see throughout all of her chapters so far how she's come to even though some of it like still feels weird to her in some ways feel at home and has accepted and absorbed those cultures those beliefs those values and she believes some of the omens right more than ned does yeah well we get this line that gives us a peek into some of that ceremony in the name of robert aaron lord of the eerie defender of the veil true warden of the east i bid you enter freely and charge you to keep his peace sir brendan replied come true warden of the east i just wanted to emphasize yes. it again re-emphasize True Warden of the East. Again, they all look over at Tyrion and Bronn. Did they catch that subtweet this time? <laughs> <laughs> Catelyn rides behind him beneath the bloody gate, which we get this little tidbit of the history, where a dozen armies had dashed themselves to pieces in the Age of Heroes. The mountains open up beyond to green fields, blue skies, and snow-capped mountains. It's like the Alps, probably. 
<laughs> exactly. It's very fairy tale and beautiful the and full of life. I think that's so apparent. So much life in these chapters. Oh, Agot. Oh, a Game of Thrones. You were so vivid, so beautiful, and all the colors gone now, and everything's bloody and sad. Well, there's still colors. The colors are just red. (sighs) Terrible and red. I love that both Tyrion and Kat's chapters in this little realm of happenstance, they open up with lines alluding to history. For Catelyn, she gets to showcase the Age of Heroes, letting George work up to his great veil world building that he so obviously loves over the next few books. Tyrion has the reference as well in his chapter that he opens up his chapter to a pre-dawn chill. As I mentioned before during our little spill of the winds of winter, the Vale's history is extremely rich and built up in George's outer works as well as in the story moving ahead. Sansa brings us right back into its icy halls in A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows, but it seems George had a huge boom of inspiration with the Vale after this book. Most of his So Spake Martins from 1998 to 2003 are rich with ideas that he seems to be pondering. Some are prompted by questions, some are just kind of his little headcanon of his world as he works on it, right? So in 2000, we had a few things pop up from So Spake Martins. Bronzio and Royce wants to join Rob's campaign, or wanted to join Rob's campaign, pardon me. And this is from February, before the fall when the book came out. Some of the Vale Lords would be disposed to Ned or to be supportive of the Starks, but some of them would be more disposed to choose House Baratheon. Interesting. Others, however, want no part of the war, and some even favor the other contenders. Also interesting. So those were just a few ideas from 2000 that George had on how he was expanding the Vale in the books coming out, or in A Storm of Swords to come. And he also said in 2002, which I just think is so important to reiterate, that Littlefinger is Lord of the Riverlands and de facto in charge of the Eyrie now, but we need to remember for all his power, Littlefinger has no army. So big facts, big facts rolling around that shows George was definitely starting to work on this story more and more from 1998 through 2002. He would have been finalizing A Storm of Swords during the time of those, so his plans for politicking in the Vale had been fleshed out, and it seems he was really waiting for the right time to bring a POV back into the fold, via Sansa, for example. We'll talk a bit later and bring back Ronald Aaron into this, but some of the implications in Fire and Blood and the World of Ice and Fire are really interesting compared to what we know here. It's interesting to note the story of Ronald Aaron was not really published or talked about until the world of ice and fire and as of may 2005 george actually didn't really have a story figured out for ron l aaron he basically said nothing happened to the kings of the mountain they just became the lords of the vale and became normal house aaron when the targaryens came but as of july 2007 he did answer a question uh, on how the king of mountain and vale came to bend the knees to the targs this was put forth by Elio Garcia, actually, and he said, keep reading, which implies he was inspired to get some new backstory going right around there, right? 2005, nothing, but 2007, it began. By 2013 at ShyCon 7, George read a bit of what he was working on with Ronald Aaron's backstory of him begging his mother to let him fly with the Senya and her dragon, and the rest was history of ice and fire and its world 
And uh, I think it's an interesting progression that 2005, nada, but by 2013, he was cooking. So exciting to see him play with that sandbox. Yeah, and I think there's a few more that you point out might have grown in the telling when it comes to the veil um, that you're going to talk about later this episode. But I think that's that's so interesting because, you know, just seeing the veil now in this chapter, it feels really it feels really thought out and flushed out so that there's more that gets built into it, especially I, he probably had to think about it more because it's going to be more important for the plot later. Yeah. Which, you know, is part of, like, you know, that first look that we get of the Vale of Aaron. It's in this morning light. They've got rich black soil, right? Wide moving rivers. Hundreds of lakes that shine like mirrors. And they've got a lot of wheat. They've got a lot of corn, barley growing in the fields. And the biggest pumpkins and fruit known to Westeros. And that rich imagery of all of this food in abundance in the Vale. We've talked about it a bit in those Sansa chapters, but it really highlights how much they withheld from the realm during the war in terms of these resources and food. There's a line in there that it's enough to rival Highgarden. So it really, again, highlights how pivotal they're going to be to the later story. Kat and her crew start in the west end of the valley, and they must follow along to the bottomlands two miles below. It gets narrow, it's about a half a day ride, and above them and the valley floor looms the giant's lance, which is a mountain that even the other mountains look up to. And of course, the ghostly waterfall of Alyssa's tears cascades down the lance. And, you know, many people have pointed out many times before Alyssa's tears and how it intersects with Kat's story. We're not going to rehash that right now. Um, we will talk about it more at another time. But notably, I think, is that the mountain, that, that giant's lance, the head of the mountain is lost. And I wonder if it could be a double meaning with the mountain, a.k.a. Gregor Clegane, losing his head. But also coming back to the sigil of House Baelish, right? Being just the head of a stone giant. Oh, I love that. I didn't really think about Gregor as much there uh, with the loss of his head. And of course, there are all those sorts of fun theories of what what could really be under there. What if it's not his head? But what if they have another head? It's what me. if it's Dario? It's no, <laughs> <laughs> you. It's Dario. Me. It's me. <laughs> <laughs> These are all surprises that it could be. I mean, truly, I don't know that I've ever actually heard both of those as a suggestion. But I it mean, could be. you heard it here first. When it comes to be canon, in none of us know. But I, I do think there's something to be said of Littlefinger, right? Of of House Baelish's sigil being the stone giant and the giant's lance lingering over the eerie just waiting to fall right mm -hmm. uh i i find that fascinating imagery especially with liza and that he worms his way in over time into the veil and john gives him spots and spots and boosts him up and then come ah! it's beautiful really good good work eliana mm, the higher good work. i'm glad you climbs the harder he'll fall hopefully oh keep going little finger not that much more though like stop stop a little more Stop building your career. We talked about this recently. Uh, no more jobs. <laughs> no more jobs. Stop getting a job. We're new people now. New views. We'll, we'll circle back to this employment discussion later, but you know, the jobs are for people like Rickon, okay? The veil feels so truly magical, right? Besides this whole like scary giant's lance thing. 
Uh, it, it does feel magical, but I hate to disappoint everyone because George has said magic was not used to build it. It is just a normal, natural, hard work. Uh, hard, slow work and natural resources making it beautiful. George said this back in 2010 at AssyCon 4. And we'll go through all the bits of the veil right in this chapter. We get to travel through all of it. I have a fantastic diagram put together in MS Paint. I don't know, maybe I'll release it as patron content. It's on Discord right now. It's beautiful. I worked very hard on it. It's part of the artistic process while working on the podcast. So I spent like two and a half hours making a great really? several dimensional MS paint uh, veil. You all have to see it. But we're going to start at the bloody gate. Take a stroll down the valley. Get to the gates of the moon. Hop a mule. Start winding up the giant's lance, and then get to the way castles, snow, stone, sky. Finally, we're going to hop in a winch, ride up with some turnips, and get to the castle with its seven narrow, kind of congregated together towers. We are. It's going to be a whole thing. And I mean, you know, in a way, the slow, natural beauty, that's a kind of magic of its own. The magic. Yeah. Uh, like like you said, coming upon a fairy tale castle in the woods out of nowhere, it appears out of nowhere amidst mountains and brush and shrubbery and all of a sudden, wow, look at this castle. Where did this come from? It's yeah. amazing. Brendan slows to point out the eerie to Cat while on his horse and she surveys it herself, seeing those seven towers that Ned had told her about, which are described like white daggers thrust into the belly of the sky interesting it is a little heavy-handed huh uh white dagger red wedding when of course seven towers right like the gods they were raised to worship and the gods the eerie did as well well when when the andals took over but real talk white dagger red wedding it's total little stabs of foreshadowing happening in this chapter it feels notable she killed a man Back in the last Tyrion chapter, right here, stabbing is on her mind. Uh, I can't stop thinking about Anchorman when they're like, Brick killed a man with a trident. Catelyn killed a man with a trident back there. Uh, that That's on the mind, though, right? That she just stabbed a man. So that language of white daggers thrust into the belly of the sky feels really, really on the nose. And it's interesting because coming here leads her farther down the perilous road. This so reads as foreshadowing for the grief we're going to experience together in a storm of swords. And it also brings back the memories for Rob and John, right? He thrust his long sword through her son's heart and twisted. Although Catelyn and John aren't exactly friendly connected, their arcs have so many connections, and this reminds me absolutely of John's stabbing as well. John fell to his knees, he found the dagger's hilt and wrenched it free. In the cold night air, the wound was smoking. Lots of stabbing going on in these books in connection to Catelyn. And, of course, there's the brilliant cinematic parallel to the show, the originator of all of this content, where Arya Stark is stabbed in Bravo. Oh, I'm so, so sorry. Wrong, wrong podcast. Anyways. Yeah, I mean, like, who knows how that's going to be adapted into these books, right? But... <laughs> mm. Great discussion on the imagery of the daggers stab stabby stab um it, it does feel prominent i'm like why are they stabbing and thrust upward 
Yeah, into a belly, nonetheless. There is a lot of stabbing mm-hmm. in the story. I'm sure we'll see m- much more. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> it's not like that's the book series or anything. Whatever. <sighs> Brendan says that they'll be at the mountain by Evenfall, but it'll take another day to reach the castle. Roderick speaks up as well, mentioning, well, you know, he can't really go much further without just dying. <laughs> Roderick's having a hard time. <laughs> Understandably. And Kat is like, yes, understandably. Excuses him on this and says that they can rest here, and Donald agrees. I want to be Donald being like, yeah, fuck that, I'm staying down here. Uh, but Catelyn and Tyrion will go on to the Eyrie with the Blackfish. Her party, besides Roderick, uh, has dwindled down to Bronn, Willis Wode, and Marillion. Marillion strides forward to beg to come with them to the castle, and Catelyn in her head is like, you know what, fuck it, braver men have died, and somehow this guy survived this journey, so he may as well come along with them. I will say, Marillion, in his quest for adventure, right, because she, she sees a spark in him, a determination, it's maybe also a little bit like Quentin, who's going to be our next POV, hoping to live like a song, and... Marillion, though, doesn't realize that his song isn't going to be heroic. It's going to be a sad one as he's hung out to dry. Though, maybe Catelyn would be pleased to learn that Marillion is hung out to dry for her daughter, though. I don't know. Uh, it is connected. She probably wouldn't. She would probably feel guilty. But it's connected. <laughs> it is. No, it is a connection. Uh, we'll We'll dive into this, actually, more in a minute here. It's interesting, the whole idea of the, the green boy from the Vale, you know, or the green boy going to the Vale. Marillion uh, is, is going to be a different guy on the other side of this, and then he's going to be dead. Yeah, so, it's it's real different when you're dead. Real different people. Catelyn knows that one, eventually. Mm-hmm. That she do. Well, Catelyn does herself in here, right? Because then, after she says, yes, fine, you can come, Bronn is like, I'll come too! She's like, ah, oh, fuck. She may not have reached the Vale without Bronn, so she's like, great, sure, you're courageous, you have a sword, but you also have a major attitude problem, and she doesn't really love that. She doesn't also like the sudden companionship he has with Tyrion. That feels like a power imbalance, don't like that. So she says, as you wish, noting Bronn didn't really ask her permission, he just kind of said he was coming. He was like, ah, nope, I will be there. I find this interesting in a way because, as you just mentioned, Kat doesn't know the future like we do and what happens with Marillion, and that she basically led Marillion to the Eyrie, led him to the water to drink. We've talked a little bit about Kat's kind of glass ceiling with class consciousness, right, and being raised in the society and nourished in it, and her belief being that it would always provide for a woman of her stature if she sacrificed to it. She did what she was told, right? So it should provide. She's definitely more likely to be distrustful of Bronn in this situation. After having dealt with, you know, the assassin in the cat's paw dagger, Bronn is a sellsword who would switch his sword at the sound of a good coin drop, as he recently has done. Especially in the face of that assassination, she's got to be feeling weary of men that can wield that kind of power physically. We, the rereader, have foreknowledge that Marillion is bad, Bronn also bad, but in like a roguish, I guess, if you stand him, whatever way. Uh, he's not great, but he, he's not as bad as Marillion in some of his shitty moments. 
Here, Kat finds Marillion, this clean, pompous singer, a less scary choice than Bronn, who is this gruff, mean, possibly murderous sellsword, which from a skin-deep level and as a person who has to worry about being preyed on by stronger people in this world, like I would probably have a similar thought, right? If I was next to Marillion or Bronn, I'd be like, hmm, I can handle that one. Bronn? Dunno. Dunno if I could take that one, but Marillion, I have a shot. Interestingly enough, we have the parallel of Sansa just a few chapters ago being taken back from her beautiful golden day of magic at a tourney where actually it ends in bloodshed and a, a veil guy, a young veil knight, does die. But she ends up with Sandor Clegane being taken back to her chambers by him who is a gruff man with a vulgar mouth who would kill a kid if you paid him enough. Sansa and his learns to trust him in some aspects and learns from him, right? And learns kind of to uh, be able to mask some of the painful situations at King's Landing because of him and because of his own experiences. Catelyn, however, would choose the singer. As we learn later, we know when Sansa gets there, she's very disillusioned with songs. Uh, when Merillion attempts to assault her, she gets lucky in the end that she gets out of it, but she already was disillusioned with him and his attitude. So it's interesting that Arya later as well, she she befriends Jack and Hagar, who is also kind of, you know, a little rough around the edges, so to speak, a little odd, a little off the, the beaten path, maybe not the high road, the low road, right? Uh, it's interesting that the Stark girls take a chance on these gruff people and Arya too later with Sandor and kind of get to know them and find uses for them. This kind of limits Cat in these ways, you know, in not being able to take a chance on the sellsword. Absolutely, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about Bronn's role next chapter, but maybe it was good for her. Maybe it was good for her that Tyrion yeah. won that. <laughs> uh, all things considered. I mean, you can't keep up with that competitive pay. That's true. I mean, he's only, I mean, if there's anyone who's doing great in his career, literally Bronn. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that man got a job and is excelling at it. Sir Willis, Wode, and Roderick stay behind with the Septon and their horses, and Donal vows to send birds ahead to announce their entrance. <laughs> Damn. Fresh rounds come from the stables, and they set off once more. Catelyn rides behind her uncle, then Bronn, Tyrion, Marillion, and six of Brynden's men. Once they are out of earshot, Brynden asks her to explain this whole, like, coming storm of hers, and she tells the tale of Liza's letter, Bran's fall, the dagger, Littlefinger, and Tyrion Lannister, and honestly, how didn't she just hand them? And she's like, here, just read the first five chapters. <laughs> Uncle Brendan, God. He listens and had always listened to anyone and everyone except for Lord Hoster, his younger brother, by five years. When Catelyn was eight, she remembered them quarreling, and Hoster had called Brendan the black goat of the Tully flock, which, laughing, Brendan had corrected, he is the black fish, and so he took that as his emblem from that day forward. I do love the uh, the older sibling, younger sibling dynamic, and in some ways how Brynden tries in this chapter to get Kat to understand, you know, like, you don't understand how your younger sister's feeling. Younger siblings change, you know. Uh, I don't have, as we know, no siblings on this podcast, only child cast, but <laughs> I imagine, I imagine. Yeah, I imagine that's something that he's he's thinking of as well. Yes, and 
I can't help but think about our cohort episodes over on our Patreon special episodes. We talked about uh, a lot about the black goat, right? So for some religious believe in the the seven gods, new gods people, damn, that's got to be a big insult. Black goat of the Tolly flock, excuse me? That's heavy for some Catholics to go say in that. <laughs> it is. It is quite heavy. And I mean, that's an intense God, you know, for people to just be throwing around. So no wonder there's bad blood between the two brothers, but there's clearly some love. Thankfully, that sibling yes. war was ended when Catelyn and Liza were both wed. Brynden announced that he would be leaving Reveron to serve Liza and her husband. And Lord Hoster had not uttered his brother's name since. Damn cold yeah nonetheless during all those years of catalan's girlhood it had been brynden the blackfish to whom lord hoster's children had run with their tears and tales when father was too busy and mother too ill cat liza Edmir, and yes even peter their father's ward he had listened to them all patiently as he listened now laughing at their triumphs sympathizing with their childish misfortunes after she tells her story Brynden is silent. He finally says that they must tell her father. River Run lies in the Lannister's path. Exactly the fear that Catelyn had in the last chapter, right? She says she'll ask Maester Coleman to send a bird when they reach the Eyrie, and actually several birds, because she also has commands to raise Ned's banners. Brynden reveals the mood in the Vale has been angry. John was very loved, and when King Robert named Jaime Lannister Warden of the East, as mentioned earlier... It was a pretty big insult. So the true warden, you know, the errands, mm-hmm. they held that role for 300 years almost. It is an enormous insult. Uh, which I will say, now that I think about it, it goes to show that Robert didn't really mean anything as an insult when he gave Stannis anything. He was just like, I don't know, whatever, fine, fuck it. Agreed. You know what? In CK2, when you play CK2... You straight up can, like, play the Agot mod, and you can assign lords and ladies to be your shit. You're like, you're cupbearer, you're this. I don't know, you're this. Like, I don't know what I'm doing in that game, and that's what I imagine Robert's doing. Yeah, Robert, actually, he is like, I don't know what I'm doing in this game. Probably also thinks with the term game. He's like, fuck. How do I get the cheat codes? (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, and... It's interesting, the, the sentiment within the veil right now, because... You know, that they cannot all say for sure that John was murdered is part of what is keeping the veil just on the edge of peaceful and not violent. Because I imagine, you know, that those who suspect foul play inside, right? They're as angry as the people of Dorne when their beloved Prince Oberyn died, right? We, we saw how furious they were. And the people of Dorne could say for sure, right? Because everyone kind of knew, and there were a lot of witnesses, that Oberyn was murdered. I mean, granted, he went into it of his own volition, but whatever. And Doran had just barely kept what was going on in Dorne from bubbling over. So I'm sure that if it were known that John had been murdered, and allegedly by the Lannisters, right? Not, not Liza, but Liza, there's no way Liza would have been able to keep it together, especially not as a Tully. Not as their actual, yeah. like, not as an actual person of House Aaron. And it's obvious that Liza was getting close to just, like, saying, fuck it all. Let's move somewhere else. Don't even have to see these bitches ever again. My son, who needs him? We can make another. Let's just leave him here and go. Petey, you know, like, Petey Pablo, let's go east. 
let's get over there to Essos, you know, and just like, I could just see her like saying, fuck it all. We don't even need to be lords and ladies. And she was getting to that level of uh, where Littlefinger was like, oh, you are a big problem. Like you are mm-hmm. a big problem to my Master 40 chess plan. And that alone would have pushed the lords over the edge. Right. Uh, I mean, we don't really see her getting to rule the lords or see a lot of the way she acts around mm-hmm. more than the lords in the next few chapters. Uh, it's unfortunately a pretty swift demise for her in ASOS when we come back to her, right? Like, it's like, uh, you get a couple chapters. We don't really get her holding court, making a lot of decisions. And we don't see a lot of these politics until Feast when Peter installs himself and is like, hello, I'm the boss now and I run things. And that to an extent is like he was making business trips on the weekend beforehand, right? He was already kind of starting to stir the pot, but we just don't get to see that. And I think that there's a certain amount of grieving that the veil has been denied, right? Kind of like with Kat not getting the bones for a little bit of Ned. And when she does get the bones and sends them north and now the bones have still not gone home, uh, that theme of being denied grieving and denied justice and the liege seeming to hesitate in the face of what is obviously grievously just like insulting and like spitting on the graves of these people that fought for this land. And for Doran, it's something out of obvious reasons why uh, as a reader, but with Liza, it becomes befuddling in this, right? Like this is when you're starting to realize something is up. Something is very, very up. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because people are like, well, what the fuck is she doing in the Eerie then? We need a lord. We got <laughs> yeah. a child. And we don't and trust she- her to run things. Like, it, which, w- yeah. which we'll get to, into in a bit. And even worse, we get this reveal that she had commanded everyone to call him this. Like that when Brynden opened and said, the true warden of the East, that is because Liza had commanded it. So we do get that first kind of feel of any man that must say they're the true. Uh, but no no one is fooled at this, right? She's not the only one who thinks John's death was foul play. No one's going to say the M word, but everyone's like, yeah, that guy, he was, uh, it rhymes with schmurdered. He, he was be? done for. Yeah. Burgers. And it's a huge, huge insult. Like Ned argued with Robert about this. And Rob, as you said, like Robert was like, no, oh, it'll be fine. It's not a problem. But, like, they named this kid after you. This kid is named Robert after Robert Baratheon, not Robin. His nickname, Sweet Robin, that is a nickname. That is not his name. Yeah. Uh, And it was a really interesting choice for George to make it Robert after other Robert in these book adaptations. Oh, my God. Uh, Truly it is, though, because you see Rob, who Mm. is likely named more after Robert as well, and his success as a king building a coalition in rebellion if for justice, right? You know, those those beautiful parallels we'll get into eventually of the rebellion. And for, for Sweet Robin, I mean, he's going to build himself up into a fit by noon today. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it, it it's really strong, right? That his name, as you said, it, he's named after the king. He's named after Robert. Robert doesn't mm-hmm. do anything. He doesn't do anything for, in a way, right? this kid is in a way his brother yeah and yeah fails him i mean robert fails a lot of kids though 
Yeah, I mean, kids. this is just add another He's one. Just to the one pile. Yeah, what's one more? <laughs> Which yeah. what's one more bastard <laughs> child against? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, and you know that is the frosting on the cake, right? That's what he comes to last. Brendan is like, listen, there's a lot you're not thinking about, and he's trying to feed it to her softly, like, cat. Do you see what I'm saying? Things are whack right now. Things are really whack. Things are out out of tune. Uh, the stars are not aligning in the eerie, and he says, he comes to the boy, and he actually calls it the boy, so for a moment, I'm sure Catalan, uh, had to turn, you know, for a moment, I'm sure she's like, excuse me, the boy? What boy? He means Robert Aaron, of course. I find this so interesting, just the, the language of it, especially because in A Clash of Kings, George kind of uses the boy- and in A Game of Thrones, he uses it to reference the bastards. Not always John. For Catelyn, when she hears the boy, it's about John. However, it comes up with Gendry, right? Uh, Gendry is called the boy throughout the first novel to Ned before he's given a name. And later for Edric, when they're taking away his identity to lessen the impending sacrifice of him, Stannis refers to him as the boy as well. So this is interesting because we have Catelyn stepping upon Maya Stone in just a bit. It does turn out good in the end, as we'll discuss. It, it it does have a resolution. It starts off a little, little tense, but I don't know. Maybe Cat could have come to terms with John's existence down the road after taking this journey if she had gone home. I don't know about that. Um, let me be optimistic and let me think about her going home. Okay. Yeah, going Just home. Let me have it. But yeah. Well, of course, when they talk about the boy, as you said, they are talking about Lord Robert, six years old, sickly, and weeps when you take his dolls away. This is John Aaron's true-born heir. I kind of wonder if Brynden is using the term the boy uh, in the same way that others, you were talking about the other way other people use the term as a way to distance himself from Robert, feel a little less affectionate, because some are saying that Robert is too weak to rule. Like the high steward, Nestor Royce, who ruled while John was in King's Landing for 14 years. And you know, he's not the only Robert I would say is too weak to rule. But anyways, some are saying that Liza must marry again and soon. And Catelyn should have expected that, of course, because Liza's young and the veil does make a handsome wedding gift. Brynden says that, you know, Liza says she's open to taking a husband as long as she finds a man who suits her. But Liza's already rejected Lord Nestor and a dozen others. Catelyn says that, Brynden, well, you, of all people, can't fault her for wanting to wait because you're unmarried, she doesn't say, but she's thinking it. And he responds <laughs> that he doesn't fault her, but he also feels that Liza is playing at courtship and enjoying the sport. And he thinks that Liza maybe intends to rule herself until her boy is old enough to be lord in truth. Ah, but maybe there's a bird chirping in her ear you just don't realize. Chirp, 40 chirp. chess. She's waiting for that 40 chess Chirp move. in her ear, chirping in her pussy. Oh my god. A woman can rule as wisely as a man, Catelyn said. The right woman can, her uncle said with a sideways glance. Make no mistake, Cat. Liza's not you. He is not wrong there, but something about this line really stands out on read-through. Uh, it reminds me a bit of Queen Alysanne in Fire and Blood, right before the second quarrel, when she said to Jaehaerys, A ruler needs a good head and a true heart. A cock is not essential. 
If your grace truly believes that women lack the wit to rule, plainly you have no further need of me. It fits well, especially with some of the beats in Sansa's arc and her connection and entrance in the Vale, as she learns its lords and players as well, better than its recent rulers, even. Uh, it just feels so significant, right? The right woman can. The right woman can encapsulates so much of this story and of what our friend Scott was saying earlier during the email that we read uh, about Ariane, Asha, Brienne, Cersei, Daenerys, their struggles in leading as women, right? And Danny and Kat obviously really lead that in the first book. What does the right woman actually mean, right? The right woman leading. It, it, is it the same as saying the female perspective? I don't know. Who were the right men who ruled in A Song of Ice and Fire, right? Uh, who were right? Aenys? Magor? Artis Aaron? Baylor? Uh, Ulf the White? Who, who was a good ruler and... What is that scale for that? That's what I'd like to understand. And I know not uh, that uh, this is all just tangential. This is just so representative, though, of the the female leaders we see and their struggles in the story and kind of these walls they come up against because of these limitations. I don't think that's tangential at all, right? I think that comes to a large part of what's at the heart of these books, especially as the story progresses. And I agree with everything that you're saying here in terms of you know, what, well, what, what do you mean by the right woman can, right? In response to a woman can rule as wisely as a man, because, you know, granted, to Brendan Tully's credit, you know, I think he would cast judgment on any man who was unfit to rule as well, uh, as we can see from how he's describing Robert Aaron. But I do think that that line is loaded when you're saying that, like, you're only making the qualifier that uh, the right woman can rule as wisely as any man, and it seems as though it's saying that a woman must be exceptional to be fit to rule, where men, such as the ones that you listed just now, right, they don't need to be wise, right, they don't need to be right, they just have the right. And what Kat said was true, without alterations or any clarifications from Brynden, a woman can rule as wisely as any man, as men are often unwise same as women same as any person people come in many different like layers of wisdom many different layers of cleverness even and even the right women are denied the ability to rule in preference for unwise wrong men as we see almost happen to rohan weber as we're going to see happen to i mean likely daenerys yeah there is something I, and i'm not sure if it's just the the onslaught of the southern politics right most of our southern female povs or the insights that we receive most heavily come from players like catalan later cersei and of course in targaryen history that closer lens of rhaenyra's trips with her father right and alisanne and jaharis taking progresses around the nation but there's a lot of parallel here for those targaryens and some of the stuff that we've seen george exercise like rhaenyra I think that Rhaenyra has quite a few parallels with Catelyn as we go through this. Uh, she reminds me of her a bit. There are a couple Liza parallels as well. You could even see the split of both of them in her. Hmm. Attending their fathers as heir for Rhaenyra and Cat, Dead children, rage and vengeance growing within them at it. Obviously, there's an analog George is playing with for Rhaenyra that we see a lot of Cersei and Daenerys split between her, but... I think there's merit in some of these recurring themes of being groomed as heir and denied birthright. 
For Catalan, it's not really being denied birthright so much as it becomes her birth's right, her children's right, right? Right. Yeah, right, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know, even even in some aspects, right? We see a lot of that with Danny as well, and with her loss of her son, which before losing her son, and as we see from this alternate idea of seeing him burning down cities in the House of the Undying and the Vision, uh, I mean, she would have become a Catalan character to him through the years, right? To lead him in his journey and getting back his throne, or like Diana Targaryen with Daemon, likely was with Daemon Blackfire. But even as we get to the Tower, we, we see some of those parallels for Rhaenyra and Liza. The years have been unkind as justice consumes them, right? I do really hate George's whole shtick, right, of the whole make her ugly or fat or hairy or ugly woman, ugly personality. Not to harp on it, whatever, but just get a new one, George. Get a new one. It's fine. I'll get over it. I don't know. Maybe this is just how George writes women. Yeah, I mean, it is something that he's... I wonder if he started veering away from it. It does seem so, a little, but I'm not sure entirely. But it's something mm-hmm. he really does like to lean on, and uh, we pointed it out, especially with Solise. But, you know, Brynden hesitates and then tells Catelyn, He fears she may not find her sister as helpful as she thinks she'll be, because the woman who came back is not the same girl who went south when her husband was named Hand, and while Lord Aaron was kind and dutiful, their marriage was born from politics, not love. And Catelyn's like, whoa, hashtag not all marriages, uh, because her ending had been much happier than Liza's. Which, you know, for now, for now, uh, hers still has the potential to go a lot worse. Mm-hmm. But for Liza, two of her children were born, stillborn, and she's had twice as many miscarriages and her husband's death, but it turns out that one was actually like really exciting for her, but we don't know that yet. <laughs> that was a solution. <laughs> that one she was like, yes. Anyway. <laughs> Team Liza. <laughs> but the other parts, I, I will say besides the other parts about Liza's life that again, we'll get into more uh, with this and probably some of the other like books and chapters, uh, especially when we encounter Hoster. Going through what Liza did isn't that easy, right? That's at the very least during her marriage, just during the time of her marriage, seven pregnancies in the past 15 years. And though I'm sure that Liza has mixed feelings on wanting to be a mother to John Aaron's children, it's what's expected to, of her as a wife, right? As to a high lord. And she did perhaps want a child to the extent of at least fulfilling that duty. And I think that's really stressful. Trying to, try to pop out a kid and sons because it's expected of you. As opposed to even like you just... Both of it is hard. Both of it is hard, right? And we see that in her protectiveness of Sweet Robin, right? That there's more to it than just duty. She clearly loves this child in some twisted way. And unfortunately, it comes off as this sheltering possessiveness of him and you know i i just think of this because like i'm at a stage where i have friends you know i have Mm -hmm. contemporaries who are going through this right where they're going through multiple miscarriages right uh maybe some of them having stillbirths and it's not easy emotionally or physically like these are emotionally devastating for people and the toll that it takes physically like all of it mentally like i can't and to, and to do it repeatedly. Repeatedly. Repeatedly and feeling obligated to do it. And then feeling like a failure 
as a wife, right? If you can't yeah. do it. I think there's a lot of, uh, we see a lot of that humanity seep through for Cersei throughout A Clash of Kings with Sansa. Not great humanity, but still humanity of her kind it's of implying. I'd be a bitter It is. Yeah. Yeah, but but of having nothing, of being isolated, alone, being beaten, being hurt, and that the only thing you had was this piece of joy of yourself that you got to look at, that yes, it held a little bit of what you hated within it, but to, to be able to hold that bundle of just like, of pure, just love, whether or not it's a healthy relationship you have with those bundles later on. And whether or not you see them as an extension of yourself, which may or may not not be happy and healthy. But I digress, like Cersei and what she says to Sansa and that what she implies is something here that we see for Liza, who is so isolated and so alone. And Brynden even continues to say that, like, Liza was so upset and isolated and scared about her husband's death. Again, we knew that there was something else going on there. That she fled King's Landing in the night with her son. And, and he makes it really dramatic. He says, snatching him from the lion's mouth. And now you've brought the lion to her door. Yeah. Kellen's like, but in chains. And her uncle glances back and reminds her, well, yeah, but also he has an axe on his saddle and a dirk in his belt. And he's got his own cell sword. He's like, but not chains she's like damn it i was really hoping no one was gonna realize that you're very clever uncle no it, it, it is unfair right because we open on the chapter and she literally thinks i cannot believe this motherfucker got unchained somehow he got himself out of his chains now he has weapons yeah yeah he helped save my life for a hot second but it all got away from her. It's all out of her control, which is kind of the gist of everything moving forward. It uh, it all snowballs, right? Everything snowballs and gets away from her. And chains or no, she says he is her prisoner. And Liza will want him to answer for his crimes as her lord husband was murdered by the Lannisters. Brynden gave her a weary smile. I hope you are right, child. He sighed in tones that said she was wrong yeah the sun was to the west by the time that the slope starts to flatten and as the path straightens Catelyn sees wildflowers and grass the going becomes faster on the valley floor and we get some really gorgeous prose that we're not gonna not talk about <laughs> we have this line cantering through verdant greenwoods and sleepy little hamlets, past orchards and golden wheat fields, splashing across a dozen sunlit streams. He's just having fun, and I really like that for George. <laughs> Good for you. Sunlit streams. Uh, it's also notable, my name actually means verdant. I, I didn't know, know that. This. I actually never knew that. Well, now you know. Now you know. Brynden sends a standard bearer ahead, and they reach the gates of the moon at full dark. Lord Nestor was expecting them, and at first all cattle and seas are stones and trees in the dark. But then she sees the fire of torches and towers and windows above them, the lights like orange eyes staring down at her from above. There's that staring eye motif once more, right? We had the weirwood eyes and the lights mm. in King's Landing, and now the lights in the eerie. She watches the higher, 
more distant tiers of glowing windows, and follows up to the moon, where she sees Falcon soaring, a flash of light beneath the sky. She gets a little vertigo, and she hears Marillion whisper, The Eerie, in <laughs> awe. It's, it is beautiful. It's a beautiful moment. And it's one of those rare moments we actually see George lay it on thick with the house sigil in the wild, right? Uh, he does that less and less in the books as going forward. I'm sure he was like, ooh, maybe it's a little cheesy, all right. But how could you not have some falcons flying at the top? It's kind of funny, but it is also like, like my high school team was the Wildcats, but there were no Wildcats in the town I grew up in, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Settle down. <laughs> With your sigils, Westeros. <laughs> the wild cats. You mean like the stray cat over on the other end of the street. Those mm-hmm. are cute, though. Aw, feral cats. Yeah. My favorite team. Cats, the musical. Uh, Tyrion. <laughs> cat. Ooh. Tyrion Lannister, however, he he's not impressed at any of this. He's not impressed at your high school, Chloe. And <laughs> he's not impressed at the eerie comments that yeah i guess the errands must not like company if they're gonna climb the mountain in the dark and he's like if we're gonna do that just just kill me now i'm not gonna go and of course this is just baby town follicks because they are of course going to spend the night here reveals brendan and he rides and they're gonna just ride the mules the next day it's gonna be fine and catlin tells him you know it's fine there are steps carved into the mountain as well she learned about it from ned who talked about his youth with john aaron and robert often the mules will take them to the Waycastle Sky, and beyond that, they would just climb by foot unless, you know, you want to take a basket up to the Eyrie located in the mountain above. And I'm just like, oh, interesting. So Catelyn just really never visited her sister in the Vale. I guess if she saw her, it would just be in King's Landing. Well, this is what's weird, because it's kind of a weird timeline. She says later she hasn't seen her for five years, so that implies that Maybe when Sweet Robin was born, she went to King's Landing to visit Liza and see the baby. Uh, Maybe with someone as a companion. But then Eddard acts like he hasn't seen her and the kids in a while. But also then says he hasn't been to King's Landing in how long? Yeah, it's weird. Maybe they went to Winterfell, which is also possible. Huh, maybe. I I don't know. I think it's just one of those details that George pruned with his shears. He was like, oh. That went nowhere. Whoops. Uh, but it, it's an interesting detail. You know, George forgot the Iron Fleet, is what I'm saying. Well, Tyrion thinks that's funny also. Tyrion laughs and says, well, actually, he thinks that the idea of him in a basket is funny, not not you. Sorry. Um, Liar. <laughs> we're going to the north. Um <laughs> Tyrion says, would that I were a pumpkin. Alas, my lord father would no doubt be most chagrined if his son of Lannister went to his fate like a load of turnips. If you ascend on foot, I fear I must do the same. We Lannisters have a certain pride. (laughs) You know, Tyrion's getting a little smug, right? He's a little, he's feeling a little good because he has Bronn. But also he's getting a little anxious too because he's like, I only have Bronn and I'm about to be in a land of hurt. Uh, His imprisonment in the sky cells humbles him, but wrongful, wrongful. He is just cracking them left and right. You know, you gotta love to see it. There will be no fun and no conflict in these chapters without him. You have to have our favorite instigator here. Otherwise, you don't have to hand it to him on a normal day, folks. Like, you do not have to hand it to him. 
but there is that little instigator inside of me that loves his chaos and his whole oh, yeah. like sarcastic remarks, you know, having the gall to just be out there and say whatever you want. And he doesn't really have much to lose as he's going to highlight later. He's like, this is a fun trip. Hope I survive it because no one knows where I am or what's <laughs> going to happen to me, especially me. Least of all me. I least of all know what's going to happen to me. That's Hope true. I don't have to, you know, fun trip to the Erie. Hope I don't have to wait until next fall as yeah. in fall from the moon door. Yeah. And even Catelyn's like, I don't know what's going to happen to the span. Sorry yeah, to that no man. No one knows. Total wild card. <laughs> now, I know that I like Tyrion's smugness here, but you know who doesn't? Catelyn. <laughs> she snaps, dude. She's like, he, he is being pretty, pretty out there. He's being a little sarcastic. And she snaps and she's like, oh, that's funny because I would call it arrogance, avarice, and a lust for power. Yeah, Tyrion doesn't deny any of this. He responds, well, okay, just to be clear, my brother is arrogant, my father has avarice, my sweet sister Cersei lusts for power with her every waking breath, and he's like, but I am an innocent, a little lamb, and he even offers to bleed. <laughs> I also <laughs> handle anxiety with humor, so I get it, Tyrion. <laughs> yeah, the uh, it's so funny because it's he's not wrong. I mean... He's like, actually, that's Cersei and Jamie that you're talking about. I'm perfect. I have done nothing wrong at this moment, which is true. It, it is Cersei and Jamie. <laughs> they they uh they hurt Bran, bro. This is all interrupted by the drawbridge. It comes down, the portcullis is drawn up, and they're led across to meet Nestor, the high steward of the Vale, the keeper of the gates of the moon, surrounded by knights who bows clumsily as he addresses Lady Stark. Catelyn knew him by reputation only previously. He's a lesser branch of House Royce, Bronze Yon's cousin, but a formidable lord in his own right. And I, I do think it's interesting. George had not come up with Miranda yet here. There's yeah. no mention of anything else for Nestor. She does not show up until a storm of swords she is mentioned. That is interesting. Great gardening. Miranda. Yes. Catelyn begs the hospitality of Nestor's roof, and he returns that his roof is hers, but your sister wants to see you at once. He's like, the rest of the party can stay and be sent at first light. And he's like, you gotta, you gotta send the darkness, Catelyn. <laughs> yeah, I thought this really stuck out significantly, almost like underworld kind of imagery with the eerie right uh, of the darkness and that she must scale the impregnable eerie in the dark, in utter dark, and come up into the lit castle in the night. It, it felt apt, felt underworldy, entering a whole new land. Uh, it is, it is. And I will say, though, like, it was a shitty, it was a shitty request on Catelyn's part. Like, my understanding, again, only child podcast here, but my understanding of it, sibling relationships tells me that Catelyn could have been like, yo, that bitch has got away. Like, I'm not... I'm not going up there. I would have told her to wait. Oh, yeah. It, it's like an obvious dig, like a, a very petty thing a sister would do to another. Like, oh, no, you'll need to come, especially because she gets there. And they're like, oh, let me go wake Liza. Yeah. And it like sucks because I guess she can't really refuse because then she's like, well, then Nestor is going to get in trouble, I guess. But it's like, I would have told her to wait. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, 
A new character appears, a wiry girl of 17 or 18, who says the mules know the way. It's Maya Stone. She has dark cropped hair. She wears riding leathers with light ring mail. She bows to Catalan more gracefully than Nestor, by the way, and promises no harm will come to her if she takes the mule. Yeah, she says, I've made the dark climb a hundred times. Michael says my father must have been a goat. She sounded so cocky that Catelyn had to smile. Do you have a name, child? Maya Stone, if it please you, my lady, the girl said. It did not please her. It was an effort for Catelyn to keep the smile on her face. Stone was a bastard's name in the Vale, as Snow was in the North. And flowers in Highgarden. In each of the Seven Kingdoms, custom had fashioned a surname for children born with no names of their own. Catelyn had nothing against this girl, but suddenly she could not help but think of Ned's bastard on the wall, and the thought made her angry and guilty both at once. She struggled to find words for a reply. First of all, thank you for that woven-in info dump, George, about the bastard right. names. <laughs> but I will say, I can't help but remark on this again, right? Like that, that call out about John, because I know that people turn to and they want to justify and excuse Catelyn's feelings towards John as fearfulness for her children's inheritance. But as we discussed in Cat 2, it is more than that. I don't think we can reduce it just to that. To do so would be to remove some of the complexity from these characters. And this encounter shows us that as John shows up, like he's just here living in Cat's head, rent-free for a completely unrelated bastard I mean, there, there is a relation. It is thematic, and Catelyn wouldn't know this, of course. It's related in that both are royal bastards, so interesting that once more they are tied together as mm-hmm. Ned ties John's thoughts of John with a royal bastard, um, thoughts of Rhaegar with a royal bastard when he sees Bara, Robert's mm-hmm. infant daughter. But anyways, Cat feels prejudiced for a moment towards this like poor, innocent girl and like forgets her courtesy entirely leading to an awkward silence it's actually very quite rude like for all that cat and Tyrion joke of the Lannister's pride like here we see a glimpse of cat's own stubborn pride but she does swallow it to do what must be done same as she's done for years uh with Ned's secrets that he won't share and that she doesn't know about yeah she's definitely you know reluctance here is key. She does not want to, but she will do it to get the night over with. And, you know, as we've said in previous episodes for Cat, the seed is strong is such a pivotal theme for a Game of Thrones for everything. You know, it anchors it and going forward for Edric uh, and for what is one bastard child, you know, against the realm, thousands of people that are going to die it becomes even more important and it becomes kind of the crux of the story when the reveal eventually comes that, you know, there was a secret baby. It was not Aegon, Blackfire, whatever you want to call him, whoever this pretender is. It was not him. There was a secret Targaryen baby and it was Jon and his birth was, you know, uh, coded in sacrifice and love and sadness. And it's interesting that even here in Catalan's chapters, he's between the lines, between the pages, not just as her worry at the bastard in her head and thinking of him, 
irrationally and guilty. She she feels guilty. I think that's a yeah, big step for her. Yeah, I think her. that is. It's significant. I think a lot of what happens here, the resolution with her and Maya, that is a big step. I am serious that maybe if she had come home after her journey, she could have maybe changed a little. You know, maybe she could have tried. She It would have hurt, but maybe she could have. I don't know if. that it would have been enormous, but the guilt does show at the very least when Ned reproaches her in that chapter. It shows that... Mm-hmm. Catelyn knew it was wrong and I mean obviously Maya grows on her right like Maya grows on everyone um yeah and that is the thing that I think is like another big step for her that at least she's thinking uh she does come to a resolution on Maya that you know like oh sweet girl and also like she reminds her of Sansa even by the end of oh you're sweet and innocent and you're just a girl and and she feels guilty about how she acts towards her and that she can't change her ways and I think that's a step without having Ned reproach her. I think that's a really big step. Yeah. And I mean, we can see why, right? Because Nestor fills mm-hmm. the silence. He's like, Maya is clever. Maya is going to keep you safe and that she hasn't failed him yet. So Catelyn says, you know, sure, she will put herself in Maya Stone's hands and charges Nestor to keep a close guard on her prisoner, Tyrion, who is as sardonic as ever and charges them to bring the prisoner wine and a crisped capon before he dies of hunger, adding that a girl would be pleasant, but it's probably too much to ask. Bronn thinks this is hilarious, laughs aloud. Nestor ignores his banter. I will say, if I were Tyrion, I I don't think I would ask for a girl, but I would shoot my shot in asking for the wine and for the crisp capon. Yeah. I would do it. Hell yeah. You might die. Yeah, you want a good meal. (laughs) Hey, better men have died going to the Vale. I'm just saying. Yeah. You know? Nestor has Tyrion seen to a tower cell, and he's given meat and mead so he doesn't go hungry or thirsty. Catelyn takes leave of her uncle, following Maya through the castle and two two mules. She mounts hearse, and they head through the postern gate. Maya says some find it easier to close their eyes on the trip, and she warns her don't hold too tight to the mule if you get frightened or dizzy. They don't like that. Catelyn, of course, says... I was born a Tully and wed to a Stark. I do not frighten easy. I love that, especially with later lines in the Vale of Sansa taking strength from being a Tully and strength from being a Stark. It just feels so nice to come back to. Catelyn relying, though, here on her identity, right, on her names in the face of being exhausted and of the experiences she has had in embracing those names and being those names, right, in being a Tully, in being a Stark, and the things that she has done and that she has given in those. Scared of the howling wolf winds here, and she's exhausted, and, and of course she's paired with this Jon Snow Maya Stone cosplayer, right? Uh, having to be with a dark, brunette-haired, waifish, slim bastard who's light on their feet. I mean, I'm just saying, Maya has to be uh, in the dark. Probably looks like John. Maybe. I mean, like, white, slim. Yeah. Wearing leathers. John is a little, uh, a little willowy. Yeah, climbing high structures. Oh, Bran. Oh, I was thinking John in the wall. The wall. Maya. Yeah. Both yeah. It, it definitely feels like she's uh, stuck on a trip to the wall with another of him. But that does change, right? Like, because she, she asks Maya... They start to get close eventually. She first, she's like, are we going to light a torch? And Maya's like, oh, you really don't know anything. The moon and the stars are strong enough. Michael keeps saying that I have the eyes of an owl. We're going to be fine, Lady Stark. Catelyn's like, all right, I'll budge. Who's Michael? Come on, girl. Spill it. Michael is bookshelf stud. 
<laughs> Michael Red Bookshelf Fort Stud. Uh, Michael Redfort, she explains, is who she's in love with. He squires for Lynn Corbray. They would wed when he became a knight next year, the year after. Catelyn thinks she sounded so like Sansa, so happy and innocent with her dreams. Catelyn smiled, but the smile was tinged with sadness. The Redfords were an old name in the Vale, she knew, with the blood of the first men in their veins. His love she might be, but no Redford would ever wed a bastard. Eh. Poor Maya, because yeah. later on, as we know, Horton forces Michael to marry a who. I mean, Horton <laughs> forces Michael to marry <laughs> Yasilla Royce and to make a royal enough match for the Vale, right, to go moving on with their lives. The irony, of course, yada yada yada, if only they knew the bastard girls under their roof were actually royals. I digress. I do want to point out the Redfords and the Royces were on the same side back in the Battle of the Seven Stars, which was introduced in 2014's The World of Ice and Fire. So George, who has been stewing on this veil stuff and how to resolve it since 2005 in the Driving License Acquired Book, A Feast for Crows. Yes, it, it, it's 16 years. Wow. Slash 2011's Fuck. Adawada. Yeah, Fuck. dude, it's bad. But this is a great echo that the Redfords and Royces were actually kind of on the same side. But not a great echo is that later, Redford in the Battle of the Seven Stars was slayed by Torgold Tallet. So, Michael Redford, maybe you should have gone with Maya Stone, because I don't know. I don't know. Stay safe, Michael. I'm just yep. kidding. Love and respect to Michael Redford, but fuck Horton. Yeah, I mean, like... Again, as you said, love and respect to Michael Redford. Obviously, Maya Stone has got her heart broken, but she's she's a smart girl. I think she'll move on. That's what yeah. smart, wise people do. They move on. I hope so. I do hope so. I mean, I'm she's like, got her mules. She's she's going to be happy. And I mean, there's clearly other people interested in her. Yeah. And Catelyn, again, she guesses correctly because in this moment she thinks... His family will probably marry him to a Corbray, a Wainwood, or a Royce, or some daughter of some great outside house of the Vale. And if he laid with this girl, she thinks, it would be on the wrong side of the sheet. Yeah. This aside, they go up the mountain, and it's easier than she hoped. Maya and the mules are great at their jobs, and she fights sleep, dozing off for a moment right as they arrive to the first waycastle on their way, Stone. The gate swings open, and the portly knight greets Maya, offering them meat and onions hot from the spit. And this is great. They eat standing this. in the yard, and she's so hungry she doesn't give a damn. Hot juices run down her hands and her cheeks, dripping into her cloak, but she doesn't care. Yeah, typical Catelyn. Uh, but actually, though, also mm -hmm. sounds amazing. Yeah, it sounds so good right now. I'm hungry again. Give me kebabs. <laughs> <laughs> Give me the kebabs. The bale kebabs. We're so close. <sighs> but that sounds good. The, the onions. Oh, God. Just uh. grabbing a little pearl onion. Ugh, amazing. They pop back up on their mules and off they trot down a steeper worn trail. Maya ends up stopping to move rocks and break up logs several times, noting to Cat, you don't want your mule to break a leg up here. Yeah, so I want to point out, like, we don't actually have 
a number or an estimate for how high the entirety of the Erie is, like including all three of the sections, what this trek that Catelyn has gone through is. Like the Erie is 600 feet up from, I think, like the stable located in the sky third of this mm-hmm. fucking structure. And like, I know that a lot of the men in A Song of Ice and Fire within the story are like, yo, Catelyn Stark is fit. But I want you to know that like, Catelyn Stark really is fit. Alright, like, she went on this, like, enormous day-long journey, she survived the high road, killed a man, and she is not taking a break, she's not been allowed to take a break, and has to climb all the way up this high-ass castle, and she's, like, yeah, on the mules, which also is its own kind of, like, physical labor, and then she has to go on the steps herself to climb up them and get her ass up all the way in the dark and the cold, like, I'm telling you all, Catelyn Stark is fit, she could crush (laughs) our heads in between her thighs and just like the strength and the stamina of this woman to be doing this trip right now. I mean, so is Maya Stone. Maya Stone's also very strong. But, but oh yeah, thick this as is hell. Nothing for her. Those thighs, they have to be muscled. Oh my god. But like, that's steel. the thing is you have to grip. You have to grip. Porcelain, ivory, steel, that's what it meant. Sansa had to get her mule muscles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. The trees become sparser after this, the winds blow harder, and once in a while she can even see a huge space below. Ugh, stone, then the gates of the moon. Snow is smaller than stone, one tower nestled into the giant's lance, commanding the stone stair above the way castle. Any enemy would have to fight his way up from stone, step by step. Stone's commander was a pockmarked, anxious young knight who offers food and fire, but they decline because they have to keep going. They get fresh mules. Katz is white and named Whitey and very sure of foot. Maya warns, though, that he will kick if he doesn't like her. Thankfully, he likes her well enough, no kicking, and they continue. There's also no ice, they're super grateful for that, and Maya regales Cat with a story. A story her mom once told her. Snow had begun here in this spot in the Vale, which is why it's called Snow, the Way Castle. It's always white above, and the ice never melted. Maya doesn't remember seeing snow and ice this far down the mountain, though. Until now, she thinks maybe once it was that way. This language is so interesting, the snow starting to drift lower and lower in the Eerie, and even later as we see them uh, kind of escape from the Eerie in the winter, Interesting, it's that global climate change creeping down. The others, here's winter, it's coming. It is, though, it is. And and that change that's going on, I think that is interesting in that it gets called out. And Catelyn notes it too, right? Because she thinks that Maya's just so young, wondering if she herself was ever like that. Maya had lived half her life in the summer, and that's all she knew. Winter is coming. We have this line of, Winter is coming, she wanted to tell her. She almost said them. Perhaps she was becoming a Stark at last. Hmm. And I just love that Kat's first instinct is to say this to Maya, because in many ways, yeah, I mean, Kat has absorbed a lot of Northern culture and values, and also, you know, how how she can't tell like if she was also like that. She probably was, from our understanding, right? Just shows, yeah. like, not even that, like, she thinks of, like, how Maya grew up half in summer, like spent half her life in summer. Thinks it makes you think of that like springtime of youth, right? Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. As Catelyn is faster than she would know entering the winter of her life because she's going to die soon. <laughs> <gasps> Jesus. 
That is another th- parallel that Catelyn has, yes. The wind hobbles above like a wolf in the waste, then goes out, luring them into complacency against the bright stars and horned moon. Cat finds it easier to look up than down, and they eventually reach a high saddle between two spires of rock. Maya dismounts and says it's better to lead the mules across the 20-foot-long path due to the scary winds. Maya steps across first, and Cat is paralyzed. She goes second, though fear is caught in her jaw. She could feel the emptiness, the vast black gulfs of air that yawned around her. She stopped, trembling, afraid to move. The wind screamed at her and wrenched her cloak, trying to pull her over the edge. Catalin edged her foot backward, the most timid of steps, but the mule was behind her, and she could not retreat. I am going to die here, she thought. She could feel cold sweat trickling down her back. That's mood. <laughs> Maya, though, brings Catelyn out of her fear, calling and asking if she's well, and Catelyn says she cannot do this. Maya says she can, and tells her, look at how wide the path is. Catelyn can't move, though. Maya comes back to help her across. They go step by step together, on to the next way castle. Sky. A high, crescent-shaped wall of unmortared stone into the mountain, and I... I mean, this is the moment, right? Like, the way that Maya just builds up Kat's confidence to make it across. Like, the way that she's just so gentle about it. She's like, you've got it. You're doing it. It just wins my heart every time. Like, Maya Stone deserves the world. She's the embodiment of, like, what Sansa's thinking of when she thinks of the term bastard brave. That's, I mean, also obviously John, but also Maya. Yeah, she absolutely is. And even in the face of Catelyn, who at first was cold, and maybe not as uh, kind and warm, you know, in meeting her due to yeah. her bastardy. And that she still shows her utter kindness and Absolutely. helps her and comes back for her and isn't going to let her stand there and think she's going to die. Amazing. What grace. Like, that's just, that's just, like, incredible grace on her part. Yes. The snow crowns, which are beautiful, begin here. Their stones rimmed with frost and spears of ice, dawn breaking in the east. The guards let them through. Maya mentions the stables and barracks are at this castle and that they'll go into the mountain now and climb through a a sort of chimney with a stone ladder and then they'll be there in about an hour. The Eyrie couldn't be more than 600 feet above them, a small white honeycomb. Catalan remembers the discussion of the baskets that bring produce and feed up and down and she's like, uh, can we get that service because Tyrion Lannister... That guy, the Lannisters might have their pride, but I have sense. The Tollys have their sense. I'll ride with turnips. I'm exhausted. And again, at each turn, gonna call it out. Catelyn delivers what needs to be done over what is proper. Yeah, it's apparent. Yeah, over and over. She gets maligned as like being too proper of a lady, but for her proper is what gets shit done. She killed a man with a trident. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> move over Howland Reed <laughs> Catelyn Stark is <laughs> Ned Stark's new best friend <laughs> stocking silver haired cloaked in Aaron garb Sir Vardis Egan escorts Catelyn out of her basket and Maester Coleman trailing behind him they have sent word to Liza who was to be awakened the moment Cat arrived <laughs> I hope she had a good night's rest Catelyn said with a certain bite in her tone that seemed to go unnoticed. (laughs) Uh, Veil humor there, by the way. A certain bite? Ah, 
like yeah. the bite, uh, ah, the, bite. the body yeah. of water. Ah. I want to reiterate. I again, I wouldn't have done what Catelyn did. I no. wouldn't have gone up. Like that's Cat's sense of family and duty. Maybe not honor, but that's family and duty for you. Yeah, that's especially impressive. knowing that she didn't wait up too. Like if at, if at the least Liza had waited up for her. And she didn't even know what awaited her on the other end, okay? Right? Like, I just want to put it out there that we know what awaits her, and it's not worth it. It's uh, not it. worth it! She should have slept instead. <sighs> God. As she goes up, she lands. They escort her up a spiral stair. The eerie is small compared to other castles. It's seven white towers, no stables, no smithies, no kennels. But they have a granary that's as large as Winterfell. I love this because it gets built on later with them leaving the Eyrie, right, for the winter because some of the resources are actually inaccessible uh, during the colder, harsh months of the winter, and they're useless for them outside of what they bring from the granary. So I find that really interesting. This seems deserted, though, in this castle, Catalan thinks as she goes through the halls, and she ends up in her sister's solar. Liza is clad in bedrobes her auburn hair tumbling down her bare shoulders, and a maid is brushing out her hair. She rises, greeting her sweet sister and wrapping her arms around Cat, murmuring, Oh, how long it has been, how long. It's been five years, five cruel years for Liza. Liza was two years younger, but now she looked older than Catalin. Shorter than her, she's thick of body, pale, puffy of face with pale, watery blue eyes. Hasn't she been punished enough, George? Yeah, I will Anyways. say now that I think about it, well, I guess Robert, Rob, Sweet Robin was born then, but like, if Catelyn's changed, if Liza's changed a lot since Catelyn saw her last, did Liza have like a bunch of those, a majority of those miscarriages and stillbirths during those five years? Hmm. Maybe. Which is a lot for like that yeah. time span. It could anyway, be. I don't know. But know. how lovely and full of hope she had been in the sept at Riverrun. Yet all that remained of that girl was thick auburn hair. Catelyn tells Liza that she looks well, but tired. And Liza sends everyone away to speak to Catelyn alone. And as soon as they leave, her face changes instantly, like the sun disappearing behind a cloud. And I will point out, it's because Liza is not the sun, but a moon. She's inconstant, she's mercurial, changing from moment to moment. Oh... That, that's the sun and the moon with Catelyn and Liza mm. instead of Arya and Sansa. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. But like in a dark, horrible mirror of it. Sad. Yeah. Liza immediately asks if Catelyn has lost her mind to drag the Eyrie into her quarrels with the Lannisters. And Catelyn's like, what? Wait, whoa, hold on, hold on. She's like, excuse me, who dragged whom? Whomst drags did whomst into what? Because what the fuck? You sent me a coded ass letter. Like I had to get out my fucking cereal box ring, and then I remembered that we had this language. And she's like, "You said that they murdered your husband, okay?" And Liza's like, <laughs> "No, she meant to warn her, not to for Catelyn to go fight them." And I'm like, "This is a bullshit." Because, yeah, sure, maybe Kat doesn't know her sister anymore, but it does make you think, like, did Liza just really not know her sister that much, right? Because, like, okay, first of all, we all know. This is obviously a lie. Because the letter could never have been meant to keep Kat out of the war, right? It it draw It's meant to draw the Starks out 
because as we see, Catelyn's first instinct upon reading the letter isn't like, oh no, let's not do anything. It's very incendiary, right? Like her first instinct upon reading it is like, Ned, you have to go to King's Landing. You got to get to the bottom of this. This is ridiculous. It's only after Bran's fall that Catelyn changes her mind and realizes everything's different and sees that danger more clearly and is like, we can't go. But that next threat, the dagger and the cat's paw, right? It pushes Cat back into action. It brings her back into the fold of, of the politicking in Westeros. And I think it really highlights how Liza and Catelyn differ because when Liza senses danger towards her family, she goes on the defensive. We see that she retreats. She flees. That's what she did in King's Landing, even though, you know, technically she's the danger, but whatever. Uh, when Cat senses danger towards her family, though, she moves forward, not back. We see it here, and we'll see it in how differently the two women react to the deaths of their husbands. Again, ignoring the part where Liza murdered hers, but whatever. <laughs> Liza refuses to get involved in the war, while Catelyn and her son marshal forces immediately to free Ned when he's taken captive, and then for independence upon Ned's death. It's markedly different at this moment, but these are small steps that point us uh, into the direction that Kat's going to take, that path of vengeance. Um, and again, that path of action rather than passiveness, because Kat is a very active character, not a passive one. That's why she's able to move the story forward and that's again why a lot of the plot is buoyed by her point of view chapters. Yeah, it's so resonant even back to what Brynden was saying right, of, you know you don't know her, Catalan. These five years and these years in general, she had a very different marriage than you. There's this broad theme of these old relationships once forged in wartime and what they thought was steel right they thought it was forged steel and it was forged with blood and sword and grief and weddings and it turns out that some of these relationships strengthened some of it was sheer idiotic luck right ned and Catalin were lucky they put in enough work they were close enough in age and upbringing and values that it worked out just right Catelyn wasn't sold to a man that was brought up in a whole different generation on different morals with different ways of treating their wives, their people, on children. John and Liza didn't bond through their losses from the rebellion, right? Liza was, again, isolated, alone, easily manipulated from Littlefinger, who was there to give her solace. I think there's just so many points being made of, especially for Kat, with the progression of Liza and Kat, and Littlefinger and Kat, and of course Kat, and later Walder Frey. Uh, as well as looking across the aisle to Ned and Robert, Ned and Littlefinger, and of course everyone in the wildcard Joffrey. The wildcard Joffrey. <laughs> the wildcard. Yes, absolutely. They are interrupted by a small voice crying, Mother! It's Robert Aaron! At long last, <laughs> Lord of the Eerie, true warden of the North! Clutching East? a... Oh, sorry. True Warden of the East. Sorry, I was busy misleading people. Uh, <laughs> as to where we were. Clutching a ragged doll, painfully thin and small for his age. Liza glares daggers at Catelyn and reintroduces Robert to his aunt, Catelyn! And who he thinks that maybe he remembers, and she's like, I doubt it, you were less than one year old. Like, whatever, liar. She doesn't say that. <laughs> but... 
Liza calls him over, fussing with him, and rhetorically asks Catelyn, Isn't he beautiful and strong? <sighs> this is such a... I mean, I've seen this scene played out in so many pieces of media, right? Like, this is like the fighting sisters having a conversation over the shoulder while nursing a child at the same time, and uh, it's so secondhand, their nature of how, like, they're doing something in the background. She has Robert over her shoulder and she's trying to do both situations. I love it. I think it's a really cool scene that you can just imagine being there and seeing them snip back and forth to each other and uh, the the talking over the shoulder while fussing with him at the same time. It's really well imaged. George is great here. John knew. The seed is strong, he told me. His last words... He kept saying Robert's name, and he grabbed my arm so hard he left marks. Tell them, the seed is strong. His seed. He wanted everyone to know what a good, strong boy my baby was going to be. I don't know. I don't think people really just go around being like, yo, my jizz is so strong. So um, strong, bro. <laughs> my semen. Um, but... Oh. <laughs> I will say, though, for Sweet Robin's sake, though, I do hope that the seed is somewhat strong. I hope that he's strong and, and he makes it. But, you know, as we discussed in Ned's chapters, John Aaron was, of course, talking about the son that he chose. And it's interesting that this exact same hint, right? It's dangled in front of both Catelyn and Ned and that both of them are trapped in this, like, nightmare noir story. Yeah, it, it especially with Maya in this chapter. Mm, I don't know that I really yeah. paid attention to it as much until now, but Maya being That's here, true. almost exactly parallel to the brothel, it, it's definitely, I mean, that's a definite that's a great important point. note. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> the structure, the structure, Jordan. The structure. Okay, the, Catelyn, the Catelyn chapter so far, they've all been very well structured. The timing, the structure, did you hear he fucked her, wise poets have said. Catelyn attempts to open this conversation back up about the Lannisters, but Liza is like, not in front of the baby. He has a delicate temper. Cat is so annoyed. She's like, he's the lord of the eerie, Liza. There's no time for delicacy. Ned thinks this is going to come to war. Liza is like, again, she snaps at her. She's like, don't scare the boy. And the boy, Robert, peeks at Cat over Liza's shoulder and he starts to tremble. Ah, this reading of this was so interesting to me because it almost seemed for a moment with how George worded it, he wanted us to really think that Liza and the shaking that Sweet Robin has kind of uh, acquired seems to be connected. Like, almost that he looked over his shoulder, waited a second, stared at Kat, and then went, here's my fit. Uh, Almost like he's throwing the fit because it's what he's been coaxed and talked into doing constantly like it's a behavior that's been reinforced by liza over time this is just totally spitballing just the way like it literally is that he looks over his shoulder at catalan then he starts to tremble and i don't know given that we come back in one to two years i'm guessing that the trauma from his family dying you know so young has definitely had to impact this whole trembling thing And Sansa does try to help coax him out of this behavior in some ways, and we do see him brave across the bridge with her, right? He gets across the bridge, he holds it together, he does it for her, obviously, and she talks him up and gasses him up, Uh, but maybe 
maybe Liza and John and Littlefinger really did just fuck this kid up with trauma. Uh, I I mean, maybe he will outgrow this. I really think he could. I think he could, too. I mean... (sighs) You think about it. I, I I just thought about this. This is mildly unrelated. Sweet Robin's described like a chihuahua with the shape. <laughs> but... Fuck. Okay. Go is on. It, I'm it, intrigued. Is it wrong? Just a shaking. Okay. Okay. He's small and he shakes. Interesting. Anyway. Oh, and she does treat him like her little pet. Oh yeah, you're right. That's true. <sighs> anyway, sweet Robin. But all that Chihuahua. being said, but I, I think you're right. I think that there's something like I think he could grow out of it, right? The right, and yeah. that's that's part of what it seems like people are saying. Like if lies weren't there, and Sweet Robin were allowed to grow on his own without being coddled, what would he be like? And it is some of that nature versus nurture, right? Yeah. Of, but I, I, and I'm not saying Robert was the right fucking move to send him, keep him in King's Landing, because look at how Robert's kids, quote unquote, turned out. But hopefully not rip in advance to this king of mountain and vale. Okay, Lord, Lord of the Eerie. Although right now shit's getting weird. Liza is comforting him because he's upset, right? With her titty, tits out, tits out. <laughs> Last chapter, as we coined, was uh was knives out, but our friends over at Discord, like our friend Rohan, has pointed out this is tits out. Yeah, I mean this is this is where we really live up to where you know some of, some of what our name, our podcast name is riffing. Oh off my of god, Liza, Liza's out here. She's girls gone wild. Oh yeah, she's wild, and it is a, a vision to be holding. Right, it's very graphic. Uh, young, young Robert is sucking her nipple eagerly and she's stroking his hair and Catelyn is like, this kid is five years old. Rickon would never. He's out there getting a job and paying rent. No wonder the veil is fucked up right now and restless. Absolutely. She's real. she's so confused. She's like, what? What is happening? Also, why is it happening? And just still has to come back to what is happening. (laughs) This is what gets her, though, also. This is my favorite thing, like, stabbed a man right she she like doesn't really think about that at all she was just doing what she had to do which is typical catlin catlin behavior right she's doing what she has to do and she's you know for the first time catlin suddenly understands she's like i see now why the king tried to take robert away to foster we were told that it was insidious but maybe it was benevolent (laughs) (laughs) yeah but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, well, we close out this chapter, of course, with the passage between Liza and Cat and Sweet Robin. We're safe here, Liza was saying. Whether to her or to the boy, Catelyn was not sure. Don't be a fool, Catelyn said. The anger was rising in her. No one is safe. If you think hiding here will make the Lannisters forget you, you are sadly mistaken. Liza covered her boy's ear with her hand. Even if they could bring an army through the mountains and pass the bloody gate, the eerie is impregnable. You saw for yourself no enemy would ever reach us up here. Catelyn wanted to slap her. Uncle Brynden had tried to warn her, she realized. No castle's impregnable. This one is, Liza insisted. Everyone says so. The only thing is, what am I to do with this imp you have brought me? Is he a bad man? 
the Lord of the Eerie asked, his mother's breast popping from his mouth, the nipple wet and red. A very bad man, Liza told him as she covered herself. But mother won't let him harm my little baby. Make him fly, Robert said eagerly. Liza stroked her son's hair. Perhaps we will, she murmured. Perhaps that is just what we will do. <laughs> okay, I do want to call out. Stop thinking about my big red wet nipple, God. Uh, I want to call out that the way this passage and chapter ends, perhaps we will, she murmured, perhaps that is just what we will do, is the same way Catalan's earlier chapter ends with, and then we will see what we will see. Um, the Tullys just have a flair for the dramatic. Yeah, I don't know if that was intentional or if that was accidental, but it, it's fun. It, it feels similar, right? Yeah, that makes sense for there to be like a similar structure, right? Because George is setting up these these chapters of Cats to be very cohesive. It's interesting that Cat and Ned are kind of the extreme on their children, right? Like, grow up, Rickon, get a job. Uh, while Liza is quite obviously far too the other way of like coddling and get your five-year-old a new oral fixation, maybe. Yeah. I I'm no sibling specialist, but they just both could take a page or two from each other and meet, not in the middle, but like, you know, a little little off-center. little off-center. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, the situation that Robert Aaron is in, right? He's a child lord. He's completely unprepared. And this is actually, I think, literally Kat and Ned's biggest nightmare for their children. And as you called out, this is why they're so far on that extreme side, especially because of their own childhoods. And so they're just like, our kids gotta be ready now. All of them. And unfortunately, their kids do end up in a similar position, right? We see Bran not much older than Robert Aaron, respectively. Mm -hmm. Bran's the acting Lord of Winterfell, eventually. Yeah, we kind of see how better prepared they are for that responsibility in some aspects, but also how ill-prepared they are in those aspects. Uh, on reread, calling out the impregnable bits of the veil, uh, of course, an additional euphemism at Liza's secret that we'll learn later, we did get a hint earlier on in the chapter on the Vale's defenses and that you'd have to fight your way up. I'm curious to see if that comes back later on in the Vale, uh, with dragons specifically. We did do a bit of talking of the world of ice and fire earlier, and there are two major foreshadowing hints that always come to my mind, and I'm always just like, is this George having a sandbox moment, right? Like, we love a sandbox moment for a king, yes. Or is it something he wants to bring back into the story later, right? Like, are these elements he wants to play with? I think I found some of them. We'll talk about them here. But Shara Aaron is known as the Flower of the Mountain. She was Queen Regent of the Kingdom of Mountain and Vale, ruling in name of her son, Boy King Ronald Aaron, during Westeros invasion of Aegon I. She bends the knee to Visenya, who takes Ronald for a quick spin on her dragon, and Ronald becomes Warden of the East the true defender of the Vale, right? Later on in Ronald's life, Rhaenys ends up arranging a betrothal between Ronald and Torrin Stark's daughter to make a peace. Ronald ends up dying a violent death at the hands of his brother, Jonos the Kinslayer, but the line continues through a kinsman. There are tons of plot points here that we can see kind of remixed and 
distributed among different plots. I don't know if all of them are things that would be one-to-one parallels or things that are to come, but they just stick out so much to me. Maybe Danny could try to make a peace, right, between the Lord of the Vale when she returns to Westeros, marrying him into her realm. A marriage between Sansa and Sweet Robin obviously isn't off the table. It's been brought up in the story, but I kind of think it's played out. I don't see it happening again. And listen, let's get crazy if we're speculating. What if Jon ends up taking a Catelyn role as King in the North, right? And is brokering deals with Danny while ending up bending the knee to her? What if? I mean, what if he gambles Arya's hand away? Her fray was last seen as cupbearer for Roos at Harrenhal, and we don't know anything about where he is, so it's presumed Elmer's in the south. He might not be living long. He might be off during, uh, you know, Red Wedding 2.0. It's an idea. It's a concept. Whatever one you want to subscribe to there, who knows? That is interesting, though, uh, because you pointed out earlier in this episode that there are connections between Catelyn and Jon's storyline, even though obviously not one-to-one, and obviously they are on different sides of their own conflict, their own personal conflict, mostly on Catelyn's side, but they do have those things, right? They're both probably going to be brought back to life, so seeing him take on a Catelyn-esque role in that is interesting. Yeah, and again, I don't know if that would actually happen, but I could actually see that moving the plot along, right? Uh, Arya is quite... Quite obviously, we know Arya is not looking to marry anytime soon. She's not really looking to settle down. She's got a little PTSD to deal with, and she wants to work on herself for a while. And Good for it, her. Yeah, and her hands will be open at the time, but they won't be John's to give necessarily, right? That could add mm-hmm. a really awkward familial dynamic to the family now that... Well, let's put it out there now that King John the Bastard, whether or not we know about his parentage at this point when Arya's home, uh, he decrees that a true-born daughter of House Stark is going to marry someone. That's an interesting tension to add to this family dynamic. And Jonos the Kinslayer kind of stands out here, right? We already have that in the form of the possibility of Sweet Robin dying or Harry the Heir dying, even in The Winds of Winter. We all know I'm in camp, Sweet Robin lives, let some of these kids live, but it could be kind of a remix on that. A a remix on, for example, my superior theorizing that Harry will die in the tournament for Sweet Robin, like that young knight we see in the Vale, from the Vale, die in Sansa's chapters earlier in the tournament. And the older one we see die for Cat and Liza's trial soon. Yeah, I do hope, same as you, and I think that this is something that I've changed my mind on over the years, right? I do hope that Sweet Robin lives. I think that it would be interesting if he does. Uh, I think that for a long time, it just seemed so obvious. Like, it seemed like there's so much going against him. But Mm -hmm. the idea that he could grow stronger, I think, would fit. The idea that people can change is something that fits within the story and to say that a child cannot change right it feels so pessimistic and so against i think the spirit of a song of ice and fire yeah like that's our time like that's that that's the time to change yeah and i mean like obviously right there's some for whom that time is stolen Mm -hmm. but it would be nice to have a child that gets that time afforded to them yeah Sweet Robin's one, Arya's another, right? Arya and Bran and Rickon, they're all still very young. Sansa's also still a child. Honestly, they're all children. Jon's a fucking child. Danny's a child. They're all children. And I do think there's something in that duality of, like, 
the idea of Robert having been fostered in King's Landing versus taken to the Vale, and that both of those childhoods, as we see from how Joffrey was raised, both of those childhoods of someone being told they're the true lord, the true king, and how they turn out and how those parents parented them didn't work well. Neither of them did. Neither Robert nor Liza did a great job here. Yeah. On a different note, in terms of the conflict that we'll see in the later books, or the political powers and factions, I couldn't help but like think, I'm kind of just like, are Stone, Snow, and Sky, are these some of the big players that we're going to get? Yes. I mean, yeah, in the Winds of Winter, but mostly probably in A Dream of Spring, based on what we've heard of George saying that Danny and Tyrion won't meet up until the end of Winds. I'm thinking like, you know, Stone, Snow, and Sky, Elaine Stone, Jon Snow, and... Daenerys in the sky with her dragons. (laughs) No, I actually think you're onto something. And originally, I I felt it with the the stone of Maya Stone, right, in this Mm. chapter. But it does feel prominent, especially with the lines about the Eerie and how it opens up down in the Vale of Arryn and how you'd have to fight your way up. Uh, You know, there were these leaks back when the bad show was on. That said that they were going to retreat during the the zombie attack in the bad show. They were going to retreat to the Eerie. This did not happen in the show. I was excited. I was like, I don't know how they're going to get there in time, but I love it. Like, are they going to take a quick boat? The Iron Fleet that we forgot about? Weird. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It was a cool leak that didn't happen. So I'm kind of bummed, but that has always been in my mind as like an interesting thing of taking... You know, taking people back that way. Actually, it makes absolutely no sense. As we see during the winter, it's not as inhabitable and they're going south to kind of get to a better place to live during the winter. But uh, interesting. It's a thought. Yeah. If you have dragons, anything's possible, I guess. That's true. I mean, that's why it's like, shut the fuck up about impregnable, Liza. You're throwing that word around. I don't know that you know what it means in this circumstance right now. It's not great. Yeah. Uh, well, that's a lot to come to the Vale. That is a lot for our first visit to the Vale with Catalan. Our only was. visit, I guess. Uh, a couple chapters of it, and then we're on the road. It, it, we are, we are. And, you know, we've got a lot of things coming up on the road, but we took the high road. We did not go north, and here we are. If you want to stay and find out what happens in the Eerie in May, (laughs) please feel free to subscribe to us on social media or let us know what you thought, right? If you have any thoughts, you can find us at girlsgonecanon, C-A-N-O-N, on Twitter, or shoot us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, and to keep updated on when these episodes are coming out, make sure you are subscribed on a streaming platform near you. We are on many of the popular ones and a few of the obscure ones as well, like Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Audible, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, iHeartRadio. I don't know. You name it. We're there. We're also hosted over at Podbean, girlsgonecanon.podbean.com. You can always find us there. Yes, and of course, you can also find us always on Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. And as we said earlier, patrons $5 and up get special bonus episodes each month. This month is a His Dark Materials episode around the missing television episode that was lost because of COVID. 
And next month, we'll be back with the Song of Ice and Fire episode. Yes, to be announced soon. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. We'll see you next time in the veil with our friend Clint from Learned Hands Podcast. Yes, I had to think about episode. it. I was like, will we be in the veil? Yes, I'm not lying this time. We, we will. <laughs> We're not lying. And yes, so this is episode 123. Saying goodbye in three, two, one.